don't have very much time these days, so I'll make it quick, like my life. You know, as we come to the end of this phase of our life, we find ourselves trying to remember the good times and trying to forget the bad times. And we find ourselves thinking about the future. We start to worry, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be in 10 years? But I say to you, Hey, look at me. Please, don't worry so much. Because in the end, none of us have very long on this earth. Life is fleeting. And if you're ever distressed, cast your eyes to the summer sky. When the stars are strung across the velvety night. And when a shooting star streaks through the blackness, turning night into day. Make a wish. Think of me. Make your life spectacular. I know I did. Slice and Dice number 30. Wow, we've hit the big 3-0? Hit the big 3-0. Wow. 30's the new 20, though, so this is probably episode 20. Dude, if you looked at us, it's, <laughs> it should be 30 is the new 50 at this point. That's true. We're not aging in the correct direction. <laughs> no, we are not. We're not aging gracefully at this point. No, we are not. <sighs> but later in the podcast, aging will become a significant part of this Actually, discussion. that's a good point. I hadn't intended that. But yes, yeah. as we... As we uh, <clears throat> take a look at the filmography of Richard Linklater, culminating with a uh, a spoiler written review of his newest Boyhood. Right, even though it's funny you say spoiler written. Not that I'm going to discuss this movie. Spoilers in Boyhood aren't the same as spoilers in like Guardians or anything else. Right, right it's right. a totally different kind of movie. Right, spoilers. He ages. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's probably too soon for this, but um, uh, speaking of aging or not aging from this point <laughs> forward, <laughs> oh, okay. too soon. Uh, no, nah, I'm good. Uh, Robin Williams, discuss. Uh, people can debate what he means to comedy right now. 
you can't debate what he means to comedy from the late 70s to mid-80s, when during our quote-unquote formative years. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams was the true celebrity comic back then. Yeah. He definitely covered all levels of, of comedy. He'd go blue. He could do kids stuff. I mean, Popeye was certainly on the kids' end of things. If you see a stand-up, actually, he was... I would argue next to George Carlin, he'd be the next closest philosophical, uh, philosophical, philosophical uh, comedian. He a lot of his stand-up was very much about about looking at life. Yep. Now, granted, there was always the Robin Williams isms, which the Seth MacFarlane's of the world, and I love Seth, but he loves to make fun of. Mm -hmm. it, it, and I get that. A lot of people think Williams become one trick pony. Go back and revisit the Rob Williams stuff. To call him a one-trick pony really isn't fair. He was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant actor, celebrity comedian. Yeah, definitely ahead of his time. You know, and over the course of the years, I've always been a uh, you know Robin Williams, take him or leave him. I never was never really into his stuff, but always had a profound respect for what he brought to to comedy and he certainly has to have been an inspiration to anybody in the last 20 years who's who's made it as stand-ups um you know they, they have to look back at, at robin williams as as you know sort of a the grandfather of, of stand-up comedy at least the modern age of stand-up comedy you look at robin williams and richard pryor and george carlin and people like that um <clears throat> just the way that i mean these are those ones you know, celebrity deaths, they happen and stuff, but then some of them just come out of left field and just hit you over the head with a bat. Like, you're like, where the fuck did that come from? Mm -hmm. And then to find out the way he took himself out is just, yeah. just brutal. Yeah. It, it, <clears throat> I was listening, I'm, I'm about to pimp another, uh, promote another podcast. I was listening to the latest episode of Doug Love's Don't worry movies. about it, nobody's listening to I this know. one, so they're... But, <laughs> And, and Doug Love's movies took a different turn this time because he had uh, he had Mark Marin, Kumail Nunjani, oh god, Volsap, uh, the uh, Taiwanese comedian, female comedian, oh, and her, her boyfriend that do the uh, is it called Who Charted podcast? Mm. Uh, god, <laughs> it, it, she goes name. by Kiko or Coco. No. Uh, but I think her last name is Voonslap. Um, he called Voonslap? Yeah, it's like I'm a Kiko. Kiko. I do. I, I am not familiar with Doesn't matter. Kiko. But they, the five of them were discussing what he meant to other comics. And some of the stuff they were talking about was just amazing. How, it's like seven years ago, Kiko was at a, just was running some little pissant, almost like a, a, a super improv kind of thing. Just anybody off the street just come in this little tiny thing. And she said Robin Williams came in and just spent all the time he could with the up-and-coming comics. And mm -hmm. just was so nice and so laid back. And one of the funniest things I heard was Kamel Nunjani was making a comment about how the first time he really talked to Robin. Obviously, everyone knows who Robin Williams is. And he, he's at this event. And Robin comes up and introduces himself as Robin. He says... Not familiar with you. What's your last name again? Uh, Williams. Oh, oh, okay. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. Are you fucking kidding me? You're Robin Williams. It, ju it just... 
the guy meant so much to the comic world, and I, well, I hope a, people give him the credit. To a man, I mean, all of the stories are kind of, that's not like some celebrity's going to come out and, and go, ah, oh, he was a douchebag and that kind of stuff, but to a man, you're hearing those kind of stories from everybody saying mm-hmm. that the guy was genuine, he was, he was always a champion of... You know, the up-and-comers, and, you know, was always had good, kind words to say to everybody he ever ran across. So, you know, I, I remember my first exposure to him was uh, battling the Fonz on Happy Days back in the in the late 70s. Uh-huh. And then turning into Mork and Mindy. And yeah, you can, if you tried to roll out Mork and Mindy today for what it was back then, you look at that like, oh my god, how what the hell is that? It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's cheesy, it's dumb and that stuff. But back in the day, we watched the shit oh, on Mark and Mindy. Absolutely, it was. And God, there were stories coming out where Pam Dauber says that a lot of times when they were shooting the show, if Robin Williams was off screen, he'd strip down naked and start doing weird skits off the side just to try to break her up laughing. Right. It was a different world, but that was just supposedly the guy that he was. He didn't take himself seriously at all, and just wanted to spread well, <laughs> spread that with it and share it with other people. Um, yeah, and then, you know, when he sort of, I mean, he was always a comedian, he was always a comedian at heart, even when he, when he took on the more dramatic stuff, but then he did start taking on the dramatic stuff, um, and I remember him, I think, probably first and foremost when he popped up in Dead Poet Society, yeah. and... It's an, an excellent film for people that haven't seen it. it. It is an excellent film, and Robin Williams is so... Kula Viliasak. Okay. I knew I'd look never, up her name, and Howard Kramer. Never heard of her, but whatever. Um, I look back at Dead Poets Society, which I think was in 89, maybe, so I was like 23, 20, 23, 24, and, you know, it's one of those movies where, you know, I can look back now in my cynical old man eye and go, a bunch of liberal hippies talking about poetry and all this kind of shit. But at the time when you're younger and stuff like that, that's the type of movie that will will resonate with young people. Um, you know, it was sort of a, a you know, it was sort of a fuck you to the man. It was, who was a trying, be true to yourself. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it, you know, screw the establishment that just wants you to, to toe the line and become this and this and this. And I think it was one of those first films that sort of allowed people to to see what their potential was outside if, if they would just explore outside. And I, and I thought that message was really good. And come on, the, the finale scene of that the, with the... Oh, Captain, the, my oh, Captain? Dude, it's that, iconic. It, yeah, it is. I, I'll take it one step further. That is one of the two movies I point at also to have given me my love of film. A, a film mm. as an art form. Mm-hmm. Up until then, believe me, I, I well, knew what 80s. film was. <laughs> right, you know? but I didn't follow film as an art form. But there are two I point out, and that would be Dead Poet Society and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm-hmm. To me, are the two films I look at and go, okay, that's when I started understanding what true film really is. Well, what's the power of film? Yes. Yeah. And because the message, especially in Dead Poet Society, like you say was so crystal clear. And not necessarily that I liked the people in it, right. but you can't argue against the message. And right. it, was, it was just a brilliant piece of work. And like you say, a totally different turn to see Robin Williams in that. And, and it, it, to extend upon people needing to see him in that aspect, check out One Hour Photo. Which, I, to, to be, to be oh. honest, I have not seen. But that or Insomnia. Yeah. 
that those those films to me are where he just was just beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and you know, talking about a guy who much darker turns. Oh, yeah. for, I mean, there's nothing dark about his role in Dead Poet Society, even though the movie takes a dark turn. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it, it was phenomenal. Then, of course, his his Oscar winning uh, uh, role in Good, Good Will, Will Hunting. Hunting, another one, another just fantastic yep. flick. Um, and then, and one what I consider one of his best roles ever, the world's famous dad, world's greatest dad, yeah, the Bobcat Goldplate. That's one people need. If people are trying to get caught up on Robin Williams films, that one may go undetected, and it's sad. That was one of his better works that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And they actually referenced it on this episode that I was listening to, which is a good thing because I think people, more people, should look at World's Greatest Dad as a, as a good take. On what Robin Williams now could do. Because right. he, he was doing a whole bunch of shit that people weren't discussing anymore. I saw one a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, where he was some dude going around to LA, uh, New York City. Couldn't even tell you the name of it. It wasn't that good. Yeah. World's Greatest Dad, though, fantastic. Oh, the Angriest Man in Brooklyn? That's did you it. see that? Yeah, yeah I, I did. See it, well, yeah. not everything he did was the greatest of movies. No. I mean, Patch Adams. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know that I ever saw Mrs. Doubtfire start to finish, just because it never, never held any appeal I to me. I saw it in the theater. Yeah, you know. I know what a drive-by fruiting was. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. And it's no, no crack on anybody who has seen mm. that or even likes that film. I, you know, maybe fine film for all I know, but it's just something that never appealed to me. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, and then of course uh, I was working at Disney during sort of his heyday too, so it was kind of big a big name attached to the genie in Aladdin. Okay. Um, you know, it, did you see the uh, the Broadway show of Aladdin after their show? They did like a, an impromptu, you know, salute to Robin Williams, where the guy who played the genie came out and they led the the, the whole thing in the no way. In a, That's awesome. Um, uh, I can't think of the name of the song. Um, Friend like me, I think yeah. is what it was. It was weird though, because I, I, I was—I didn't know if you'd seen it or not. Because he's the guy who plays the genie, and he pulls out this piece of paper, and he's having to sing along. I'm like, if you play the genie, are those the words on that piece of paper? Shouldn't you know the words? <laughs> if you got the role. <laughs> And you were having live shows. You probably should know the words to the song by then. But I don't know what was on that paper. But whatever. Anyway, tragic loss. Far too too early. But uh, and do yourselves a favor. Go go and check out some of the works that people don't discuss anymore. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the Mrs. Doubtfires or, or Patch Adams. Go and find the stuff from way back. World according to Garp or so stuff in his early days, or even like you said, World's Greatest Dad. Check that out. Is that he has some amazing work people have not seen? Yep. Jumanji. Jumanji. Thirty-seven years ago today, what happened? Uh, that would make it two thousand fourteen. Would that be seventy-seven? Yeah, it'd be seventy-seven. Yeah, my math. My math is good. I do not know what happened in seventy-seven. Thirty-seven years ago today. The king of rock and roll died. Really, Elvis Presley. You know his next show is going to be in Portland too, right? Elvis. Yeah, we were the next show on the tour. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that, that's 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 Portland's place in Elvis history. I know a, a woman who actually still has her ticket. Her life's dream was to see Elvis. He literally died right before he was going to play the show up here. I, I would have never guessed. I, I would have guessed that today. 
Portland would be such small pickings for somebody like Elvis Presley. I can only imagine in 1977. Yeah, he's going to play the Center. Why in the hell would Elvis Presley <laughs> come no to Portland freaking Maine in 1977? No idea. That's and that's why I, I will always know we were the next show on the tour. Hmm. But yeah, that, wow. Now, it, it's weird because there was a there were some news stories about you know this big. Uh, gathering of people that go to Graceland. Uh, well, I guess like half a million people a year visit that. But Oh, yeah, the Juggalos. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, he was a big influence on Juggalo yeah, culture. I kind of think yeah, it. You know, he's a big fan <laughs> of uh, big fan of Fago. <laughs> <laughs> That's what got him so fat in his older years. Just too much, too much Fago. Um, but, uh, you know, people, of course, today, one of the biggest days to go and, and do the remembrances. And got me thinking like god do, do people today under the age of uh, 40 even even know the relevance of elvis presley oh god no 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 but you look at some of these people that are out there doing the the uh the memorial type stuff and you, you think it's just being passed down in specific to specific families and their generations you know parents who had who uh, were big into Elvis and, and what he meant back in the days? It's just sort of bled off on their their kids because I just don't see today's kids it, coming from any kind of non musically inclined family. And what I mean by that is means just not music listeners or anything like that having any interest or knowledge or anything of what Elvis Presley meant to rock and roll. No. He was the one. He was the one who broke us out of sort of that. That big band era. He yep. was he was before the Beatles, before all that hysteria. You know, he he was it was Elvis Presley. And he was I the one shocking the parents. Yeah. He, he was one of the first to do the crossover to Hollywood. Yep. Say what you want about the Elvis Presley movies. I remember when they were a big deal when they started advertising two weeks beforehand. They were going to put one of them on some Saturday afternoon. No, and parents actually sitting Usually down in to Hawaii. Watch them. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Look, there was what girls, girls, girls was one. Yeah. Uh, Blue Hawaii, yeah. things like that. And people, yeah, you plan plan around seeing those things. I used to have the album live from Hawaii. I don't think I ever had any Elvis Presley albums, but I, it's that's not any slight on him. I'd never knock what he means to rock history. He, to, as far as I can, am concerned, it is pretty much rock history. <laughs> that gap mm -hmm. of pre-rock into what you know rock and roll became eventually in the in the 50s and 60s i was gonna say he was what late 50s 57 yeah. 58 ish 50s, yeah yeah 
Because by the 70s, when he passed away, he'd already had a good 20-year run. Yeah, he was he was late 40s. Yeah. Maybe even maybe even 50 by the time he died. Close to. Yeah, well, there was the whole thing with uh, Priscilla, where she was like 14 or 15, right? <laughs> right. And he was very of age and just would spend the night in her room just talking. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure is completely accurate. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I dug I dug Presley's stuff, you know, mm-hmm. for what it was. Um, you know, I <clears throat> I can uh, certainly respect uh, what he meant to rock and roll. I would certainly point way to more to uh, way more towards Elvis than I would for my own likings of rock than I would something like the Beatles. Elvis to me broke the, basically opened the doors for a lot of these other types of music. Yes, he opened the door for Miley Cyrus. You look at you look at what used to Elvis Presley just gyrating around on stage or whatever, and how that was <laughs> offensive back then. Just just shaking his hips was offensive. Fully clothed guy, and now you've got Miley Cyrus, and ninety percent of the population doesn't even bat an eye at that shit. Well, when she's masturbating on stage, yeah, yeah. not anymore. Well, the, but the difference is, is Elvis had talent. Well, this is true. Miley has zero. We've become such an uh, such a weirdly open sexually society, and I don't know if it's I I guess it's the internet that's kind of done it that people. But remember when you were a teenage boy? I'm going to go off on one of my little. And the first time you found a penthouse magazine in the woods, and we all went looking for them in the woods, and we found them there. Imagine what you could have done if you'd had the internet at home. Fifteen seconds later, you have it, but no, 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 no. We knew where those. We knew there was porn in the woods, and our job was to find those goddamn things. I think that the internet has kind of changed things. Because okay. you're right. I do remember all the old black and white shots of Elvis doing that weird hip shimmy of his, and parents just covering their kids' eyes and stuff like they were seeing something that was just so I would, offensive. I would I would argue that the internet has ruined ruined the world. I don't disagree with you. Social media is... Uh, I, I, I honestly believe social media has done more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's... And, and, that, and I com- that comes as somebody who uses it frequently. I don't. Uh, no, but... But the thing, the thing is, though, you use it... You're not one of those people, though, that lives on it. You're on it. But you can shut. You can put it down for two hours. You don't need to see what, update somebody's Facebook status that you're about to take a leak. Right. That doesn't mean anything to you. But when I see when I see arguments about how people want to be able to text in movies or or <clears throat> they, uh, they they feel like they have to chime in on something happening halfway across the globe with some just stupid rant or something. You go looking back at Robin Williams, his daughter suspended her Twitter account because of assholes on Twitter making these stupid comments, uh, you know, towards Robin Williams and stuff, towards his, to his daughter, two days after he dies. Dude, I don't believe in heaven or hell. There are places, there are levels of there, hell meant for these kind of people. The internet and social media has given a voice to way too many people yeah. who just shouldn't have one. Right. I'm not talking about silencing people's opinions and stuff, but... 
there are way too many stupid, idiot, irresponsible people out there we don't that are need to allowed know what everybody's to have is. a voice in shit that they just should yeah. just shut up and go away. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he got there from Elvis, but <laughs> no, that that the whole Miley Cyrus no. jump and that, and, but it, it, that's completely true. People have. People's senses about this stuff has become so dull that oh, they, yeah. they don't even notice anymore. Well, you look at Bieber. You, the fact that this kid still has throngs of fans going out to his shows. I'm sorry, if you're letting your your kid who who's under the age of 18 go to a Justin Bieber store uh, concert, you have got a problem. Right? How can you? I don't give a fuck if he's the greatest artist on earth. He's a douchebag. Mm-hmm. He's Kanye West, another one. Don't don't chime into me how talented these people are, and that's your excuse for giving them a pass. Fuck that. I don't care how much talent these people have or, or pretend they have and stuff. They're they're losers. They don't deserve an audience. What's lost is that they've elevated themselves above everybody else, mm-hmm. and people worship them for it. No, and I'm not saying the, the Elvis types didn't think that they were something special. Because, of course, at some point you're going to. But they didn't ever seem to forget that it's the fans that got them there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's missing now with a lot of celebrity is this this disconnect from what the fans truly mean. Mm-hmm. Elvis was there to his dying day for his fans. Yeah. And I can't tell you that Kanye gives a fuck if he's a fan there. No. It doesn't mean anything to him. Miley Cyrus does... What, 30 shows on a quote-unquote world tour? She doesn't fucking care what a fan is. It doesn't mean a goddamn thing to her. Mm. Then you see the weird Al Yankovics that are doing two or three hundred shows on each tour. You know, okay, he gets it. Right. But they, but a lot of the up-and-comers just don't get it anymore. It's sure. it's a total disconnect. Oh, well. Elvis is... Anyway, Elvis... Dead. But he'll still be missed. He still will be missed. Um, I didn't really have anything else news-wise. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to bring up. No, it was actually a really quiet news week. Uh, Robin Williams, understandably so, kind Uh, of dictated. Dominated everything. And and that's to uh, to be understood. But... On the Weird Al Yankovic thing. You don't have to love the fact that all you needed was 6,500 signatures for the petition to get him to play the Super Bowl. And we had well over 100,000 signatures. Could this happen? Well, has he come out and said that he's interested? He's come out and said it's an interesting idea. He doesn't know that he's what the NFL is looking for. There are rumors going around that there are people that he's parodied. That have said they would love. It's the only way they do the NFL halftime show would be if Al was doing their song, and he ca- they came out and sang backup on Al parodying them. That's the way for Weird Al to yeah. do this. Yeah, do some of the stuff and do old, do new, do vin- do some great Al stuff. That is finally the first halftime show I think I could get behind in a yeah. long time. No doubt, because it would seem to say to speak to. A large part of the audience. Yeah. And to not just be some fucking person that's either A, 40 years past their prime, or B, only relevant to people now, to the youth now, and, and not people our age. Right. So, but yeah, he hasn't made any official statement, but when you hit 100,000 signatures plus and that thing's still rolling, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the NFL responds to this. Right. Well, if he, if he could... Uh... 
if he could take a swipe at his wife or something like that, the NFL. Oh, they'd, they'd be probably all invite over. Him, invite him right over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking douchebags. All right, let's uh, pause here. We'll do a little what we watch. All right. Come on, Natty. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. <laughs> Cowboy heroes, cops and robbers, glamour and strike, bigger than life. Sitting in the darkness, what a So, I've been busy the last couple weeks watching stuff. I've been doing that lately. I'm up to 90, well, after today's flick, I'm up to 97 flicks on the year. So. I've watched seven, I think, in the past 48 hours, but five of which were to make sure I was in a good shape for the late, uh, Richard Linklater discussion. Right. That doesn't count. No, it doesn't. I've, I've got five different movies to discuss uh, uh, since the last podcast. So the first one is actually a, uh, a Netflix documentary that they loaded up uh, called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Long before steroids and multi-million dollar contracts, there was a truly independent ball club. A bunch of guys who were hopeless dreamers looking for a second chance. In short, best kind of people. When we first heard about Bing Russell, there was this buzz about, well, who's Bing Russell? And he was in the Magnificent Seven, and he's the sheriff from Bonanza. My dad got killed 126 times, I think it was. Why would Bing Russell come to Portland? Bing was out to prove that independent baseball could work. I think we charged Bing $500 for the franchise. So we started from scratch. We're going to have open trials. Show us for the fools that we are coming from Hollywood. You'd expect maybe 40 or 50 people to show up, and I think 300 showed up. Guys who drove, you know, clear across the country and sacrificed this or sold this just for the chance to come and try out for the team. I don't care, you know, about the money. I just want to play ball. I don't know if you've seen that on streaming. No. Um, and like I said, it's basically, um, it's documentary. It, uh, it's a little under an hour and a half long. And it's about... Uh, this independent baseball team in Portland, Oregon, that was um, Portland Mavericks, I believe is what they were called, that was funded and founded by uh, Bing Russell, who was Kurt Russell's father. And I didn't know that the Russells were actually from Maine. Really? Uh, that's what they said. Lived up in the Rangeley area, stuff like that. But anyway... Bing was a, uh, he was an actor, did a lot of westerns, stuff like that, sort of where Kurt got the acting bug or, bug or whatever, but was also a big, huge baseball fan. And he, it was during a time, an era in the 70s, where, where independent baseball was, was falling off, because Major League Baseball wanted to have that controlling interest in the entire sport, so independent uh, teams were... By were being bought up by the major league teams, and this was going to be their you know farm clubs or double A's and triple A's and stuff. And Bing said, "Well, screw that. I don't I don't want to be a part of the major league baseball establishment. So I will I will fund my own team." Portland had had a team, but 
when it was bought up by Major League Baseball, they moved, they relocated. So, so Portland, Oregon was without a team. And he basically held open tryouts for this new, I don't know, was it AAA equivalent to AA or AAA equivalent? I can't remember. Um, for the Portland Mavericks. And he got just this ragtag group of people. It said over 300 people showed up and they pieced together this team that was competing and actually beating the major league level ball clubs hmm. um, to the point where it was just pissing off major league baseball because he was proving that their business model wasn't the only way to make this thing work. And people in Portland were, were the attendance just shot through the roof for this team. The, the city rallied around it like they never did when the major league team uh, minor league team was there. Um, it, to the point where it was pissing off Major League Baseball enough to where this, where if it got near the championships and stuff, that the Major League clubs would send down top-notch players from their from their big clubs just to make sure that this guy's team wouldn't advance still, and things like yeah. that. And he, and they managed to go through. I think there were about five or six years where they were just this. And I'd never heard this story before. And, um, they, there was an ex-Yankee, um, Jim Boughton or something like that. He was, a, he was a pitcher. He was kind of a journeyman pitcher. And he had pissed off some people at the major league level. And, and he made a comeback with this team, became like their superstar pitcher. Um, yeah, just all sorts of stuff. It, it, it was almost like it was almost like this like minor league equivalent of the Sandlot. I was going to say, this sounds like a, a spinoff of the major league, but uh, some side, a major yeah. league with some side thing. We get just this ragtag Where, group of people. That yeah, just, even, even it, 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 all you see is a lot of this behind-the-scenes footage and stuff where... You know they're they're in their clubhouse. You know in you know drinking beers and before the game and all this stuff. Just all these guys have had a blast. This thing's only not even an hour and a half long, and there's there's excerpts in there from from Kurt Russell and all that stuff and, and you know growing up in in and around this and it, it was really a fascinating look at this at this team and this in this league in this era of baseball. Can't say I've ever heard and you of kind it. of walk away going yeah. Major League Baseball, just a bunch of fucking douchebags. <laughs> you know, just like all these pro sports leagues now. It's all about the greed and the money. And, and, and you know, if, you, if you're like me, who has definitely taken a big step back from the pro sports, that I, being a fan that I used to be back in the day, where, you know, it, where... I lived for Sunday in the Bills game, or I lived for, for, you know, my team playing stuff, and I got pissed in that stuff when they lost or something like that. It's just not like that anymore, because it's, it, I, I just can't, I can't give a shit anymore. Well, the about, business has taken over. Sports. Yes, exactly. It's not about the competition, it's about the business. It, exactly. And this was sort of, you know, alluding to that, to that whole, you know, where the corporation was, was becoming bigger than the actual sport. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of the beginning of the end era, um, but it's it's a fascinating uh, watch. Really cool little uh, little check it out documentary. And Even if you're not a baseball fan, you know it's interesting enough. Baseball history, I am though. Yeah. It, uh, to me, baseball is a sport that has some tremendous history. Mm -hmm. It's you got to find the right documentary, and like you say, get out of the business part of it because mm -hmm. it's certainly a sport that the business has destroyed. Right. I also, a 
Hey, what was that sound? Oktoberfest is out, so... It is. Thankfully, it's only August, so we've got a few months left. Right. Um, a movie I've been looking forward to, because I like the director a whole lot, and I liked one of the stars of the movie a whole lot, I saw Eye Origins. How do you I'm a scientist. I believe in data. A scientist? Hmm? What kind of scientist? Molecular biology. I'm most fascinated with the eye. The, the, the eyes? The eyes. Why the eye? The eye is the one sticking point that religious people use to discredit evolution. They use it as proof of the intelligent designer. Intelligent designer. God. I'm looking to end the debate once and for all with clear, clean facts. Data points of every stage of our evolution. Why are you working so hard to disprove God? Disprove? Who proved that God was there in the first place? Which was Mike Cahill as the director. He's the one that was behind Another Earth back in 2011. And Britt Marling is also in this movie. Unfortunately, this one doesn't quite reach that lofty height. Not that this movie hasn't doesn't have an ambitious idea. Just really didn't... Uh, it didn't spend enough time exploring the idea I had hoped it would. It basically was, uh, it was dabbling around the theory of reincarnation. Um, you had this, it, oh. makes, it makes it worse. I was going to say, I just heard the pop. No, I'm watching it. Um, <clears throat> about this guy who, who is sort of a lab rat, a scientist. He's trying, he's infatuated with the human eye. Um, and, but he's, he's science guy. Straight through and through. There's no room for argument. You know, it's all about the science. There is no God, this kind of stuff. So he, from his perspective, the, the human eye, he's looking for ways to like help blind people see, that, that kind of stuff. And of course, he meets this girl who is, she's got a Frenchish name. I can't, I can't think of off the top of my head, but um, who has a little bit of a different viewpoint on the world, you know, is more open to the possibilities that, that there's, you know, more of a, a God and this type of stuff. More, it's definitely more spiritual. It's, it's, she doesn't cram God down your throat. She's just more spiritual. You know, more uh, things may happen uh, for, for reasons that science can't explain and such and such. Well, spoiler alert, she eventually dies. Um, and he ends up down the road about six or eight years later, marrying his lab partner, who was played by Britt Marling. They have a child, and after the child is born, they go through that series of tests and whatnot, and there's this new experimental thing where they scan the retinas and this kind of stuff, and they scan the retina of the child, and the retina comes up in the database already as some black guy out in Iowa. Um, and... After that sort of builds on and on, they look at it as like a glitch or something. They, it sort of builds up and up and up. And all of a sudden, it's like they're finding that there's a lot of other newborn retina scans and stuff that are showing up in these databases and stuff. And it's sort of alluding to this whole uh, the eyes are the windows of the soul kind of thing. And apparently eyes are like fingerprints. There's not supposed to be two of the same anywhere in the world. Your, your eye your eye print or whatever is unique to you and you only. So when the stuff starts showing up 
in other areas, it starts to to try to bring about this, you know, reincarnation type discussion into the thing. And it sends him off to India because he, he's trying to find um, the the eye from his ex, his dead girlfriend from back in the day shows up on a database. And he's trying to find the girl, the little girl who, who has now has these eyes and stuff so he can try to find her and you know it's it's supposed to be this movie about how this this straightforward science guy is now struggling with the possibility that something like this could happen that that, because this is definitely against everything that flies in the face it flies completely in the face of his scientific mind that something like reincarnation could even be possible um and the, the problem is as far as the girlfriend we're talking about oh, maybe an hour and 45 minute movie and it sure feels like it's close to 45 minutes to an hour before the girlfriend dies because um, they spend a lot of time just setting up how much he loves her and this the relationship that's building and such and such so when that finally happens it, and her death really has to serve as the catalyst to move forward with this narrative of all of the heavy topics it wants to get into it just feels very rushed by the time they actually get to that point. And it's just, it never really gets a chance to, to dive into these concepts, these theories of, of the reincarnation and whatnot. And not a lot of time to spend on his struggle with, with his scientific mind having to deal with maybe a non-scientific thing. You know, in, in typical fashion... Um, Cahill and Marlings type stuff will always have that ambiguous ending um, like in another Earth when, when there's these two parallel universes and at the end they see each other the same person sees each other and then it goes screen goes blank that will happen again here that type of ending but it's it's just telegraphed from so far away you see it coming a mile away um, it, it's not entertaining at times I just don't think... I think he had way too much stuff that he tried to cram into a little bit of time at the end. And it just didn't work quite well. I could only give it a 2 out of 5. Really? Yeah. Now, Brett Marling didn't have as much to do with the writing of this one. No, right? I, I don't believe she had anything I, to do with it. This was this was straight up Cahill. I don't know if there was another somebody else involved with the writing, but Marling was just in it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and she's fine. I mean... The, from the acting perspective, everybody is, is fine in mm-hmm. this movie. It's nothing to do with any of them at all. Um, it just, you know, just the, the concept was a little too big for the amount of time they gave. They didn't give enough time to, to deal with it properly, so it sort of falls flat. All right. So, you want me to go one more? I got to uh, see what I had next. Yeah, go one more. Um... Because I'm going to be bringing the conversation way down, so <laughs> I uh, I've got three more, and I will give you the one. Um, do I have three more? Or you have uh, five? Yeah, no, I have three more. All right, I'll give you the next one. I'll give you is the, the next one. The uh, the, the shitty. I'll give you the shittier of the three I have left. All right. I saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh yes. That's and this is actually shittier than I origins, but what are you? We're ninjas. We're mutants. 
turtles. Ninja, mutant, turtle, teenager. When you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. Let's rock and roll, boys. Get us out of here, Donnie. Where were your stamp Are you always telling me what to do? Check base, bruh. Still figuring out the buttons. Always had a soft spot for the turtles in my heart. Guilty pleasure thing. It just I like the turtle stories. Um, you know, when Michael, when you heard that Michael Bay's production company Platinum Dunes was on this, and then they started talking about playing with the origins and making the turtles aliens and maybe not ninjas and stuff, and you know, backlash was just fierce and and quick on this, and and to the point where they they sort of reined in those uh, let's reinvent the origin discussions and brought it back to a more traditional traditional uh, origin um, it, it, it's just bad you know I, I, Michael Bay you know he didn't direct this but you can see his fingerprints all over it the, the guy is just he's a hack and Jonathan Thing is always a hack that makes a whole well, and that's lot why of money. He's gonna, that's why he's going to continue doing right. this that stuff. Means gr- number two is long since greenlit already. Sure. Well, that weekend when this thing just somehow... I I didn't see this film beating Guardians on Guardians Week 2. And it not only did it beat it, it used it like a rented mule. Sure. Well, and you look at this as just, just fun family stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. I mean... Sure, anybody under the age of 12 went into this movie and probably had a freaking ball. Because they, you know, when you're that age, you don't see how stupid something is. You, you, we could still point to our own childhoods. Of sitting there Friday nights infatuated with the, with the most greatest show in the history of the world, The Dukes of Hazards. Watch that show today. Tread lightly, buddy. Hey. That show was just... Perfect. Watch, watch that today. No, I have no desire. Right. I've told you, go back and revisit Porky's nowadays. Yeah. That movie, right. we worshipped it as teenage boys. If you sure. watch the thing now, it's awful. Uh-huh. Truly awful. Sure. Um, so, if you put yourself in the shoes today of a 10, 11, 12 year old boy and you're going to see Teenage Mutant Tur- Ninja Turtles, you probably think this is the greatest movie of the summer. Um, and, and I guess that's what you have to get past as a cynical old guy is that these movies aren't for us anymore. So yes, we could sit here and be the and act like it's frustrating that that they've ruined our childhood and stuff. And so, but yeah, you know they haven't really because it's really not our childhood anymore to ruin. Our childhood version of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles still exists, and that's the one we have to think about as. As our version of the Turtles. Um, yeah, this movie was shitty. And I can sit here and list to you off reasons why there was the character development was horrible. The look of the Turtles was horrible. Megan Fox couldn't act her way out of a wet paper bag. You know, it, granted, she's not there for her acting abilities. So, yeah, I can list off the whole reasons to tell you why this movie sucked. If you're a 12-year-old kid, you probably love it. How was William Fichtner, though? Wholly underused. He was Shredder, uh, right? No, he wasn't. He was just a. He was just a douche. Really? I thought he was going to be Shredder in this. No, he was more of a. In cahoots with Shredder, he oh, was okay. sort of a, a bankroll of sorts. Um, he 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 was the guy who 
headed up a company who sort of had an antidote to this. Uh, it was like a gas that would like wipe out a bunch of the of the population, and then he could become rich beyond his wildest dreams, providing this antidote to it. But it, you know, at, at the cost of tons of lives and stuff. And that's that that's sort of the what the turtles had to stop and stuff. You don't even really get the turtles until a good half an hour into this flick. Really? Yeah. Early on, it's all about Megan Fox's character uh, as April O'Neil. She still looks good. I'll give you give her that mm-hmm. much. She's not hard to look at. Um, as a, a reporter who is assigned a bunch of fluff pieces, you know, you know, the you know, the, the giant turtle races or, or, you know, Grandma Edna's award-winning blueberry pie, that kind of shit. Um, and, but she wants to become a, a legitimate, like, crime reporter and stuff. So she just sort of meddles in places where she doesn't belong. Is the one who actually discovers the turtles. And Whoopi Goldberg shows up in this thing for a brief amount of time. And, oh, and she's just, a splinter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's racist. Um, um, but Will, uh, Will Arnett is in this and he's mildly funny and with what he's given to do, but it's just, it's just corny. It's, it's dumb. And, you know, if you're over the age of 12, don't bother with it. It, it just isn't worth it. All right. Okay. So like one out of five. Oh, I give it, it a, I believe I think I give it a 1. one and 5 a half. out of five. One and five. Only cause Megan Fox is hot. All right. Well, I will jump off the conversations of our childhood then and say that I finally got around to seeing Muppets Most Wanted. That's why I'm telling you, you've got the wrong frog. If you are not Constantine, why do you have that mole? It's not real. Someone glued it to my lip. As far as authorities are concerned, you are Constantine. Glue or no glue. Make yourself comfortable. You're going to be here a while. I wouldn't be so sure. My friends will be here soon. Now, lights out. Turn them back on. I can't see anything. You have to wait till I'm, like, out in the hallway. It's figure of speech. Uh, this pretty much takes place fairly soon after the, the ending of The Last Muppets. Not that you need continuity in the Muppet movies. No. But what's funny is that one of the first numbers is basically that they're doing a sequel. And what are they going to do? And, and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew even references the fact that technically this is already like the seventh Muppet movie if you're really keeping track. So they've already got sequels down. And in this one, as the trailer shows you, they, they meet Ricky Jar- uh, Gervais, who, who's Dominic Bad Guy, even though he says it's pronounced Badgy, that it's French. Which, as soon as they hear that, the Muppets, oh, okay. And he promises to take them to, to on a world tour. And that basically, if they do this world tour, they have massive success. The first show will prove it all. What they don't say is that he's also working for Constantine. Arguably the, the most well-known thief that there is who's just escaped from a Russian gulag. Constantine looks just like Kermit except for the black spot of his mole on his cheek. So there's a great scene where Constantine meets Kermit, slaps the black spot on his cheek, and 
Waha, they end up changing places. I wanted to dislike this movie. I really... Why? Well, here's... Because when the Muppets came out, we both loved the first film. And we we painted... Because it gave us that little piece of our childhood back. Then when all the rumors were coming out about, well, okay, so Amy Adams is not going to be part of this one. And, uh... Why would she be? Right. And I'm trying to think of... Yeah, Jason Segel's not going to be part of it. But... This movie, actually, I had a boatload of fun watching it. It, 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 it's, it still sticks to what makes the Muppet stuff work. It gets into what it's like to be a Muppet, how people just accept them as part of reality. Which, and that to me has always been the thing with the Muppets that works is, at no point do people look at them like they don't belong. They're Muppets that just, they, they exist in our world. It's this little piece of reality that somehow we all accept. And that's where this works. Some of the absolute best scenes in this movie are with uh, Sam, uh, Sam Eagle and Ty, is it Burrell? Bure from Ty Burrell, uh, yeah. Playing a dude from Interpol who had been brought in to work saw together. Saw that a clip in the, in the thing. Dude, some of the scenes of those two trying to outdo each other, <laughs> that Sam Eagle's like, Interpol, come on. <laughs> They really hit upon what made the old Muppet stuff work. And it also doesn't fall into the trappings of the later quote-unquote sequels where you're like, you just, all you're doing is just throwing Muppets and just some other thing. And this actually was so much fun. I enjoyed the hell out of it. It's great family fare. Again, it's a Muppet movie. The, the number of cameos that are in this movie are absolutely awesome. And what's great is because they're doing a world tour, as they're going from country to country, the cameos are based on that country. So when they go to Germany, they have Christoph Waltz dancing a waltz while people are blowing up dynamite around them, that kind of thing. When they go to uh, Ireland, Cherche uh, Ronan is doing a ballet of Swan Lake or something. It's, it's, they tie things in so closely. And again, you're watching going, Jesus Christ, Danny Trejo as a Mexican dude and a, a Russian gulag. And they even play that up where all the Russians come up saying, welcome to the big house. Then Danny Trejo comes in and says it in Mexican. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> they, it's that kind of thing that makes the Muppets work. Both for kids and for adults. There's so much here. It's just a fun movie. I, I, If you like the Muppets, definitely see Muppets Most Wanted. I give it a 3.5 out of 5. It wasn't as funny as the Muppets film. But you'll still have a good time with it. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out at some point. Um, I saw a movie that I'm going to I'm gonna guess you might probably haven't heard of. Um, I saw a movie called Tracks. And so I'm writing to you in the hope that your magazine will sponsor my trip. I believe National Geographic to be of the highest international repute. The trip will take me through some of the most beautiful and barren country the desert can show. I'm enclosing a map of my proposed route from Alice Springs to Ayers Rock, then on through the Western Desert to the Indian Ocean. three camels and one small calf, trained and ready to go. They are perfectly reliable beasts. Their names are Dookie, Bob, Sally, 
and baby Goliath. I am well aware of the hardship I will be facing, and the first to admit I am remarkably unqualified for such a hazardous undertaking. But this is precisely the point of my journey. I'd like to think an ordinary person is capable of anything. I, you would be right. And I actually, I saw the, a preview for Tracks when I was went to see Eye Origins. Um, so I decided to look it up, and, and, and I found Tracks. And it's basically based off a true story of this uh, Australian woman who walked 2,000 miles through the Australian uh, desert. Never called it the outback, but the desert. Apparently to the Indian Ocean. You know how many snakes and spiders and things she could come upon? Well, that's just bad news. Sure, but regardless, I, I was like... I'm looking back at a movie I saw earlier this year called Maiden Trip about the 14-year-old girl that, that mm -hmm. circled the globe in, in, her, in her sailboat. And I thought, well, this looks similar to that type of thing. It's just about a woman who's walking. And, and she, granted, she was older than 14. Um, but not but not well. She didn't, didn't seem like she was beyond her beyond the 20-ish range. Uh, played by Mia Wasikowski, who's actually very good. I like in this. Mia Wasikowski. Um, yeah, definitely a, a good young actress. Um, and, and basically, this builds itself up to be kind of like this this movie about how she's just it, she has to do it just to do it, and it kind of feels like a you know a find yourself kind of movie, just something you need to do. Um, so it's not a something because to prove it's movie. It's just no, not really. It doesn't doesn't have any allusions to that. Um, the only problem I have with this, this isn't as nearly as interesting as Maiden Trip was, um, but this isn't shot in any kind of documentary thing. And apparently, this is based off of the the uh, memoir of the actual woman who did this. Um, and, and I, to be honest, I don't remember any specific reasoning for her to do it other than she just wanted to do it. And she goes on this, this thing. She, she works for about six or eight months with a camel. Apparently camels are a big thing in Australia. Didn't know that. But like wild feral camels are a big thing in Australia. And there, there are people who will trap and sort of sort of domesticate the camels to where they can be useful rather than just running wild. So she works for about eight months saving up some money for this guy who traps and, and trains these camels. So she learns a lot about the camels and stuff like that. And things eventually, when she's ready to go on her trip, she takes these three camels with her to carry her shit and all this kind of stuff. And one of the other camels, prior to them going, had a baby. So she basically had three and a half camels because she had the baby camel too. And it's basically this this girl walking through this Aboriginal countryside and the desert and all this stuff with these three camels. And she gets sponsored by National Geographic. So there's this uh, cameraman played by Adam Driver. I was going to say, I just saw an IMDb um, and it has your boy Adam Driver yep. in it. Um, but the agreement there is that he'll just pop up every, like, once a month to take pictures on where she is. He wouldn't actually be accompanying her on this. Well, the problem I had with this, because, and I'm sure this, uh, at least I, I, I would hope that 
in something like this, which I imagine for the person doing it, it would be a, I don't know, a spiritual awakening of some sort, uh, um, you know, with all the loneliness and the time to think and, and things while you're out there. Um, they don't do any kind of, of real good job in this movie of, of giving you what, how solitary this would be. Or, quite frankly, how dangerous this would be. This movie never really goes there to any great deal of of, of, of how lonely she is or how in danger she is. Again, creatures alone well, in freaking Australia. It, it, there's a lot more time spent with her and the people she meets along this way, but not so much in the way of like of of what she's learning from these people. It's just that there's people all along the way. Um, and it spends so much time on it. She runs upon some aborigines and things like that, that that seem quite domesticated, and people who own little little farms and stuff just along the way. She has this thing all mapped out. Um, so it never feels like she's really alone. And then, of course, Adam Driver shows up every so often. And whenever she's not dealing with these, these villagers or something like that, she's got Adam Driver there. So you never get a full experience of how alone she might have been on this trip um the only real danger that they play into i don't i don't recall them really getting into any kind of snakes or wild animals or anything like that which you know would have to have been a part of it um there's there's one instance where where one of the a farmhand gives her a gun before she takes off and says uh that if another if, if any wild camels start coming at you don't think about it shoot them because they'll basically... Wild camels that are evil? That's a thing? Yeah, well, they're feral camels. They're wild... I just never thought that camels being feral would yeah. make them mean. Yeah. Uh, pigs, I get it. Pigs you can see, but camels, yeah. really. Yeah, and it basically there's a couple instances where this, this you just see like this these camels running at them from the distance and stuff, and her having to shoot the camels. Because um, apparently these camels will kill the camels that she's had. And then if she's out there with nothing, if they don't kill her too, she's done. So it, that's really the only real point where the danger piece comes in. And then finally at the end, when she when she crests over this dune and all of a sudden there's the ocean, which is her final thing. I don't know, I got, I got more emotional resonance out of the warriors getting onto their beach at Coney Island than I got off this here. I, I just... You know, there's, it just, it, I, I, after the end of this, I was like, well, what was the point? I'm sure there was a point for the woman who actually did this, and I'm sure that her book probably explores that. The movie doesn't do a good job of exploring hmm. any of that stuff. It was really just sort of like, okay, girl's walking, and she meets people, and she comes to the beach eventually. And that's really the extent of it. Um, so it was kind of just boring and uneventful. For the, for the most part, um, Wasikowski is good in it, but she isn't really given any kind of, you know, chop, any kind of uh, emotional resonance in this to, to, to work with. So, yeah, I, I, ultimately, I, I'm like two and a half out of five. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll undercut that and say the movie I did not want to see, I had to see because my niece was in town, it's the one she wanted to watch. I actually paid to see Let's Be Cops. <laughs> hey, um, I'm sorry. I had no idea that you were a cop. Oh, no, I'm not really a cop. 
<laughs> what do you mean? We're more than cops. Yeah, we help all the intense units, uh, SWAT, FBI. The other day we we're on a 5150. And this guy comes off with a sawed-off shotgun, right? And bang, bang, bang! Dude. I look behind me, and J-Rock puts one in the chest. Do not let that humble face fool you. And we all at the force talk about it. We think he needs a serious back massage. Okay. Uh, I'm Josie. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Chang? Oh, Chang. Yeah, 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 uh, Chang, yeah. That's uh, a uh, family name. Um, I'm. Uh, I'm sure I will see you around, Officer Chang. Let's be cops has one thing to thank, and that's Tammy. Because had Tammy not come out, it would be the least funny movie of the year. But Tammy is out there, so let's be cops does not take the dubious award of being the worst com- comedy of the year. <sighs> let's be cops premise is you. Of course, you have two losers. One actually has a good job, and that's what kills me. He's a video game developer. Oh, but he's a nerdy guy who doesn't speak up, and his boss, played by Taco from the League, doesn't want to listen to him. So he's just kind of pushed aside. And his buddy, I guess, has no job. And their university that they went to, that they both apparently went to Purdue University, they're having a, a reunion. It's a costume reunion, so screw it. They find that they've got these police officer costumes. They go in costume to find out it's not a costume party. It's a masquerade party. So they're two douchebags in costumes while the rest of the people in three-piece suits and those awful little masks. But what the fuck is up with that? But the masquerade yeah, thing? Yeah, what's oh, up with douchey. masquerade? It it's is fucking douchey. douchey. It's people that want to have a costume party, but they that, think it's too uncool. They right, can't get that, out of their their fines. That's that's rich, like, like extravagantly rich people costume party. I'll hold a stick up with a yeah. little son of a... And you won't know it's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. It's so awful. And, and of course, though, when they come out and all these... They're walking down through Hollywood... And all the hot chicks, apparently it's a thing to kiss cops that are out on the road. I didn't know this. So as they keep getting people kissing them, they're like, oh, wow, this is all right. And then they realize the power in saying, stop. They're like, being a cop is cool. So they spin it off and decide they're going to play cops. So on the week, uh, on their nights off, they dress up as cops. They buy an old cop car. They put the blue lights on it. Only slightly do they even get into, do you realize what happens if we get caught? They even have a police scanner in the thing so that they can respond to calls. They're like, oh, no cops will show up 15 minutes. We can get right there, do our thing, and leave. It's all an interesting enough pres- uh, 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 idea, but it's they don't do anything anything with the reality of it. Who is this? Is this a kid? One Hart? of them's, oh, no. One of them's one of the, it's uh, Damon Wayans' son, Wayans uh, Jr. And the other guy's Ryan something I'd uh, never heard of, but he's been on like the new girl and stuff like that. Oh, right, right. Yeah. No, oh, wasn't it, wasn't it uh, Jake Johnson? Ah, oh, Jake, yes, it's him. Yeah, no, he was, uh, he was in, um, and Drinking not, Buddies. Well, and Safety Not Guaranteed. Yeah. I, I like that guy. Uh, and, and, they're all right. You can see where they'd be funny enough. It's just they're not given anything to work with here. Um, Nina Dobrev plays a... Uh, oh, right. Oh, she's freaking hot in this. She plays a waitress of a place that Darren, as dressed up as cops and some 
toughs come in to try to push their weight around. There's cops. They stop them. So all of a sudden she's into the weigh-ins one because, well, that's what happens. Um, it, it's really a who's who of that group of people from around the league, as in the league, the show, or Key and Peele. Because a lot of the people have been bit, bit parts on Key and Peele or bit parts in the league or both. Again, Taco's in it. Natasha Legero's in it. Um, uh, Keegan-Michael P. Uh, Key is one of the guys in it. It's got a few funny moments, but this thing thinks it's way fucking funnier than it is. Rob Riggle's in it, of course, as the cop who is the straight macho cop who thinks is this big brotherhood of cops and we must take care of our own. It, it all just feels almost an absolute waste of your hour and a half. Well, actually, worse. Hour and 50 minutes. This thing plays out in a good 110 minute long movie with two chuckles to be had during the entire movie. Again, had Tammy not come out, this would be the least funny movie of the year. It's hanging somewhere around a 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. Awesome. That's giving it some credit. I cannot in any way recommend this movie for anybody to see. It is truly, truly dreadful. 1.5 out of 5. Ugh, brutal. Well, I saw one more flick that I was scoring better than 1 out of 5. So, there you have that. Um, I saw The Expendables 3. Welcome to the 21st century. I can do that. You want to slip on a dress and give it a shot? You did. I did. I saw, I went to the theater yesterday. They finally got it right. You're not the first person I've seen say that. was awesome. Okay. (laughs) Finally, they found, they, they found the happy medium. They, they took what was, what worked best between the two. They got the action well done. And they got, yes, the, the dialogue is abysmal. It's supposed it's to be a nod horrible. to the 80s action movies it is, where it was. It is, so it's laughable. I like you. I'll give yeah. you last. Yeah. It, it, actually, I think that was in there. But this wasn't like, one of my biggest critiques of the second one was that they tried too hard to do that. Like, with the whole Arnold and Bruce Willis thing, it's like, I'll be back. No, you always back. I'll be back this time, then yippee ki That was just, that was dumb. That was forced. Mm-hmm. This time here, it's very self-aware. It's very self-aware of what it wants to be in that regard. But the, but the in-jokes are so much more subtle and well-played here than they were in the second movie. And then the action is is great, and you throw on just the the the, the brutal dialogue and shit blowing up all over the place, and it's perfect. It's basically again Stallone is the leader of this group. Um, you know, you have you have your your thing that happens up front that sort of sets it off, and then eh, he sort of decides that 
he's going to end up going on this this sort of suicide mission, and the evil guy in this one is Mel Gibson. Um, but he doesn't want to be responsible for taking out the rest of them, the, the, the Jason Statham and the Dolph Lundgren and that type of stuff. So he sort of writes them off completely and brings in a whole new set of, of younger Expendables. Uh, Kellen Lutz is in this, Tito Ortiz, you know, some more guys from like the wrestling world and stuff like that. And Ronda Rousey, um, who's basically that hottie MMA chick, who's a horrible actress, but works so well in the context of this film because it's just so much fun to actually see this chick out there kicking the shit out of all these guys. And it, it, the talk a while back about doing an all-female version of this, after seeing Rousey in this, I want to see that now. Oh, you start with not Rousey be- and Gina Carano. Right. You'd think you'd have a good and start. Like I said, not because Rousey's a great actress by any They don't stuff. have to be. She's not. But now, but but she's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch these chicks out there and kicking. The she shit does have some charisma. I've seen yeah. that in her interviews. There's something about her you have to like, and she's hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, now they have sort of an opening for that too. You know, now you can branch off of this and do something like that and sort of tie it all together. Whether they do that, eh, I don't know. Her role wasn't. Big enough to where she's like a, a principal character here, but um, you know, so basically, he goes over to battle Mel Gibson and, with this new group and stuff, and turns out that the the uh, uh, all the, the the young kids get uh, captured by Mel Gibson. So, and Stallone goes back, and all of a sudden, there's his original team waiting for him, stuff like that, and they all have to go back and, and save them. The, you know, and you get the corny, like, uh, the old man versus the, the young kids kind of thing. But, um, dude, it worked It worked much, much better than the first two Expendables. This was far more what I was looking for, um, where I, I really didn't like the second one at all. This one was a lot more fun. And, you know, the PG-13 thing, you know, it's semantics. Yes, this is, this reality is... This doesn't happen to anybody without, you know, the F-bombs flying everywhere. That's just not the reality. But whatever, you know, it, it's not it's not distracting to, to not have that stuff there. Because it's just a lot of fun to watch stuff, watch all the action and stuff. Um, yeah, three and a half really? out of five for me here. Just, right. just for the pure fun of it. Don't go for the dialogue. But that's the point. That's what they're supposed to be capturing <laughs> oh, and, is the and, fun of those movies. And, and, I will, and the one thing I will say is that, that they do address the absence of Bruce Willis. Do they? In a classic scene. Because you have Harrison Ford in this. Um, and remember, Bruce Willis sort of played, I think he played, uh, was it Church? Yeah, the, the government contact. I can't remember if, yeah, I can't remember if... Used to be uh, a big military guy, but... I can't remember if uh, Schwarzenegger, what his name was. Anyway, whatever Bruce Willis's name was. I thought it was Church. I don't know if that's him or Schwarzenegger. But anyway, um, Stallone goes to, to meet Bruce Willis's character and instead gets Harrison Ford. Um, and, and there's another in-joke where Harrison Ford keeps telling some dude to stop mumbling. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> He's like, I can't understand a word you're saying. Stop mumbling. <laughs> so, you know, they're playing that up. Um, and then uh, he goes, uh, Stallone's like, where's church? He's like, don't worry about church. He's not in the picture anymore. 
<laughs> it's just very self-aware of the in-jokes that are, that are tied into this one. Just much more well done. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. All right. I would recommend it. Cool. All right. We will break one last time and uh, refresh and come back and talk a little link later. It'll be a slightly heavy conversation. My life is 24-7 bad. No, no. <laughs> I mean, the only happiness I get is when I'm out with my son. I've been to marriage counseling. I've done things I never thought I would have to do. I've lit candles, bought self-help books, lingerie. Did the candles help? Hell no. All right, I don't love her the way she needs to be loved, and I don't even see a future for us. But then I look at, at, at my little boy sitting at the table across from me, and I think I would suffer any torture to be with him for all the minutes of his life. You know, I don't want to miss out on one. But then there, there's no joy or laughter in my home, you know, and I don't want him growing up in that. Oh, no laughter. That's terrible. My parents have been together for 35 years, and even when they have a bad fight, they end up laughing like crazy. I just, I don't want to be one of those people. And if I was going to give you a grade, I would give you an A. But that's the problem. Rock ain't about doing things perfect. Who can tell me what it's really about? Frankie. Uh, scoring chicks? No, no. See? No. Eleni? Getting wasted. No. Come on. No. Leonard? Sticking it to the man? Yes! But you can't just say it, man. You gotta feel it in your blood and guts. If you wanna rock, you gotta break the rules. You gotta get mad at the man. And right now, I'm the man. That's right, I'm the man. And who's got the guts to tell me off? Huh? Who's gonna tell me off? Shut the hell up, Schneebly. That's it, Freddy. That's it. Who can top him? Get out of here, stupid ass. <laughs> yes, Alicia! You're a joke. You're the worst teacher I've ever had. Summer, that is great. I like the delivery because I felt your anger. Richard Linklater. Laugh riot every time. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, I've always I've championed Linklater for a long time, um, mostly due to Dazed and Confused, which is in my pantheon of of my top ten of all of all time. I don't, I don't know where it would land, but it's definitely up there. Um, he's definitely one of those guys. And I know we were talking earlier um, before the podcast about how. If you just ask casual movie fans who their best favorite directors are, you're going to get the Tarantinos and the Scorseses and things like that. Maybe if somebody's a little bit more into to flicks, you know, you'll you'll get the Nolans and the Finchers mm -hmm. and and, uh, and guys like that. But the overlooked guy, at least what seems like the overlooked guy, is Richard Linklater. I and, would totally buy that. You know, he's kind of like that. That afterthought, but if, when you stop and look at the filmography of Richard Linklater, 
it stands up there among the greatest, in my opinion, of, 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 of some of the movies he's done. You're talking about a guy who is just fucking bold, who won't be held down by any specific standard, um, who, who, who explores and examines different genres all over the place, and, and has made a living off of, you know, we talk about the, the screenwriting abilities of, of Tarantino, or even like a Kevin Smith, or things like that, but Linklater, I think more so than even them, has, has, his filmography is so seeped in conversationalist well, filming. he gets the human element. He, above, as I'm watching Linklater films, I'm realizing, I, I, I've heard many times before where Kevin Smith talked about he and a buddy, was it Moj, sneaking Moj. into the yeah. city to go catch Slacker. Slacker. Yeah. And, but... I'm, I'm as I'm watching Linklater films. I'm understanding how much of Kevin Smith's approach to movie making truly comes from Linklater. Yes, Linklater is the heavier, no pun intended, version of Kevin Smith. Linklater doesn't just get the funny out of the world; he gets everything. He gets what conversation is. What the human element is, what into what relationship is, he gets it and somehow captures it for everybody to appreciate as they're watching his films. And it's in such a minimalist way. Oh yeah, you don't yeah. realize that what you're getting is basically a psychology lesson every time you watch a Linklater film. Right. And I'd even put that on his films that aren't that there are even as lighter fare. You're still getting a psychology lesson. You're getting the fact that he understands the way people interact. Yes. He understands what how different just the sometimes facial expressions yeah. carry hundreds of different meanings, and he just nails that. that. Sometimes it's not about the funny or the sad or stuff, but a lot of times it's about the awkward. Yeah. Well, that's basically slacker to a T. Yeah. Is just following that awkward for one night throughout the city. Now, now, yeah, just from one character to the next. Um, now, Slacker was sort of his first feature, cinematic feature. Um, and yeah, and you know, like to your point there, Kevin Smith cites that as sort of like the launching point for. He's how many times has he said it's like he walked out of that film and he's like, wait a minute, that counts as mm -hmm. filmmaking. And it wasn't a slap at Linklater at all. It was no. kind of like, I can do that. No, basically, you're talking a movie that he didn't even truly create a character. No, what there's he, no plot. There's no, no plot to Slacker. All he created were a whole lot of discussion points. Yeah. Let, let's, just, let's just draw a discussion point out. Here's this person. This person likes... He's the person who shows up at a club... Says he's on the list to get in, but oh, well, he's not. Right. How do people react to this guy? Right. And just follow a night of basically playing tag, you're it. Doesn't force any comedy nope. or, or, or unrealistic uh, things around it. Just lets it play out like it would play out. But let's just embrace that human element. How would you react if you ran into this guy? And then what conversation would it elicit from you? From meeting this person. And let's carry that throughout the course of the film. It's interesting because... I, as I told you, I watched Slacker again the other night. 
it's been a while for me, so I was going to ask you to go ahead and, and talk a little bit more about Slacker as, as his first film. Well, when I first saw Slacker, it literally had only been out for about a year. Because I, I, I saw it with the first chick I dated after my ex-wife and I split, and she was a, a, a total uber hippie. It was a match made in heaven for her and I. <laughs> but she, she was big into independent cinema. It's how I saw a couple of the Mike Nesmith films, which i got to give her immense credit, like Tapeheads, brilliant film. And we sat and watched Slacker, and just the way it follows people, it basically says, you know what, even if you don't have a point, you do. That everybody is a moving part in this big overall game that is society. And that's all Slacker tries to do is say, okay... Here is your piece. You move from point A to point B. There's the great scene where it's just some kid running into some old dude who's talking about they were in Houston, right? I think it was uh, Houston. Austin, I think. Austin. I, I know it was Texas City. And it's just some old dude pointing to all of the great statues and stuff and the, and the giant buildings around it of just what it means to see this, uh, this build up around them. And just, you realize how people just take all this for granted. And, and I think that's really what Linklater is saying is, you don't need some major plot. Everything is a story. Mm-hmm. And and I would argue that when we get into the discussion about today's movie, that's truly the point, is everybody's story is a story. Mm-hmm. It's a story that you could document as a movie if you really wanted to. That the whole, and you and I know we joke about this whole everybody's unique thing is bullshit. It's not Bullshit. A, a lot of the stuff that we embrace as being unique isn't. But right. everybody is a unique piece in society. Right. And it's what you do with it. And that is what Slacker is to me is mm-hmm. you have your own part. You don't need to create some hero or anything. Everybody is that piece in society. And that's what Slacker tries to give you for an hour and 50 minutes is your piece in the play that is society. Right. Well, shortly after Slacker, a couple of years later, he comes out with Dazed and Confused. Now, I know that you had seen bits and pieces of this in the past, but it was always sort of a afterthought for you, but you right. revisited it recently. I did. Um, of course, I've, I, I revisit this movie at least once every six months, because I just think it is that phenomenally awesome of a movie. Yep. Um, you know, it was, it was you could definitely tell that uh, he had more to play with here. He had, uh, you know, some of the first appearances of of Hollywood actors that are that are well known today, and Affleck and McConaughey, and I love McCona- um, McConaughey in this film. Um, uh, Mia, Mia Jovovich, Jovovich uh, Parker Posey, Anthony Rapp, all those guys. Um, uh, Gold, Adam Goldberg, mm-hmm. uh, all these guys are in this in this flick and. It is such, and, and again, it's another twenty-four hour piece of life. Like Slacker was a, was a course of twenty-four hours. Mm-hmm. A lot of Linklater's flicks are a twenty-four hour slice of life. Look at the, the before stuff, which we'll get into a little bit later. He um, loves his snapshot in time. Yes, what it is. It is exactly, he yeah. wants to give you a moving postcard. Yep, and this was here. This was a nineteen ninety-three feature, I think, or ninety-four. Mm-hmm. And it captured 1970s high school America perfectly. Perfectly. That that movie to me, it, 
as I was revisiting it, I, I felt actually ashamed at how I'd kind of dissed it and realized, but I told you that as I was starting to think about the movie, I realized that a lot of the scenes I was crossing up with that other one that was the uh, one that had uh, Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer. Oh, Half-Baked or something? Half-Baked. Yeah. And, and Dazed and Confused isn't that. Dazed and Confused isn't Dazed all but Confused perfect. is not a stoner comedy. No, it's an all but perfect snapshot of Americana is what it is. Yes. It does capture what Back when you could bully was. at will. <laughs> yeah, or, or back when you did. You just had all your buddies. You'd show up 200 people to a freaking beer party out in the, the freaking woods. Yeah. And no one bothered it. Right. You'd have the couple people watching up when the cops showed up. And if the cops showed up, they'd just take you home. Yeah. You weren't being arrested. You weren't. It was none of that bullshit. Yep. It was basically when we weren't worried about everybody's feelings. It was no. Here's the reality of it. You know what? You're gonna get hazed. So get hazed. Take it like a man and accept it. And if you do, the upperclassmen will accept you for it. They'll be happy that they got it of their system. Oh, and by the way, four years from now, you'll get your chance too. Right. And that was the whole point. Was it was coming? It was. It was rites of passage. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not endorsing bullying by these stretches there, but um, it, it's just uh, people back in that day were were far more preconditioned to being able to deal with fucking life yeah. than they are now. And it, a lot of it is just this mamby pamby bullshit that we've we've just babied everybody and, and politically correctized, and that's not a word. Mm-hmm. Everything and now everybody's just a me 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 gimme gimme gimme. I I deserve this. I deserve that. And, and no, it, it's so much. Things are so much simpler back when when the world just was allowed to police itself. I, I feel bad because I'm losing the main little kid's name. Uh, well, it was played by Wiley Wiggins, but yeah. I can't off the top of my head think of his name. Because his sister even said, go easy on him. He's yeah, small yeah, yeah, for yeah. his age. But the scene at the Little League game, when he realizes, I'm fucked. Yeah. All my buddies have taken off. Yeah. I've got to go out where the guys who are, where they're up, fuck it, I'll just own it. Yeah. But the fact that when he owns it, other than Affleck, mm-hmm. all the others are like, he's our boy. He, he just... He's part of us. And yes, they shit on him for being a little guy and stuff. But then they're tossing him beers, yep. trying to get him laid throughout the course of the night. They're like, you're one of us. Yeah. You just, you you took that step into adulthood by not going running home to mom. You right. just became an adult. And yeah. you accepted the responsibility that the hazing is. And no, again, I agree with you. I'm not saying bullying is a good idea. No. But in this, that wasn't the intent. It was basically to say it's a rite of passage. Right. People There's a certain amount people of People aren't pain. trying to, to kill you or hurt you or like that. They're just, it's just, you know, welcome to the next stage of your life. No, just, just accept it. Oh, and but if you do, four years from now... You'll get it too. But I also love the fact that they didn't say it was just a guy thing either. No. It's what the chicks were doing. They were, they were the far more humiliating. And yeah. Throwing the freaking dirt and everything else on the girls. The pacifiers. And, but, uh, but even them, if you just shut up and took your medicine. Yeah, they were good with they it. They were good with it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love Days Confused. And, and the soundtrack alone. Oh, it's brilliant. Days Confused. Plus, plus, come on, McConaughey in this, in his first role, dude. Oh, uh, he was freaking awesome, dude. Waterson, dude. Like, all right, all yeah. right. 
I like high school girls. I keep getting old. They stay the same. But he just keeps, he's in his 20s and just keeps yeah. showing up at all the high yeah. school parties and he's yeah. the cool guy. Right. And even when the little kids are, uh, at some point, yeah, I want to be this guy. He's like, all right, that's cool. All right. That's cool. <laughs> Basically, yeah, I'll just drop out of school and get a job working for the town. and It's all good. Yep. Like, right. Because when you're that age, that to you is success. He's got right. a full-time job. He's able to come and drink with the group. What could be better? Oh, and he gets the hot chicks. Right. Perfect. Right. Now he was driving an El Camino, I think, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that, that, that to me still, I think, I think from just a pure fun and, and standpoint, that probably still remains my favorite of Linklater's flicks. I, yeah, is, I, I would do, I totally agree with you. Um, after that, though, he started, and I don't, I don't know. I never read anything. I don't know if this started with the intention of what it would eventually become. Um, but he came out with Before Sunrise, um, which turns into something completely different. Eighteen years later, and like I said, I don't know if that was the intention from the start. Or if this was just intended to be a one-shot at the time? I don't get the impression it was the intention at the start. And the reason I'm wording it that way is that, uh, as you know, is I literally just caught the three of them over about a 48-hour period, uh, period of time. And I think they need to be discussed as a whole. They do. But what's interesting is, as I was watching Before Sunrise, I had most certainly seen that movie before. I, I, as I'm watching, I'm going, all these scenes are familiar as hell. And, and I started piecing it together saying, yeah, I'd seen this before. I It almost feels like these were done, the first one was done as a one shot. And before Sunset, also uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy helped write. Yes. And I think that plays into what may work that much better about it is by then they had an, an investment in their characters and wanted to go somewhere interesting with it. And and what you get is just a, a, a character arc that captures the full idea of what being in a relationship can be, or both the reality and the idea of what the perfect is in somebody's mind. Right, it's basically, you know, now that there's three films uh, after last year's Before Midnight, it's basically just the stages of relationships at, at nine-year intervals. Yep. You have Before Sunrise, which is two young kids meeting each other ch- by chance on a train, spending the day with each other. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's without a doubt a love at first sight. Yeah, it's the early, it's the early to mid 20 something passion crush. Yeah. Where you, at that age, it's easy to fall head over heels in somebody and just yeah. the conversation just seems so fluid. There's no responsibilities yeah. to worry about. You just, you just sort of go you're with just, the floor. You're existing. Right. You, you, you sip your glass of wine and you just exist. And, and that was the whole point around, like, Ethan Hawke's character in that is, he wasn't, at that point, he didn't even know what he was going to do. He was just on this trek across Europe. He bought one of those, was it like a two-week or two-month URL pass? Yeah. He was just going to go wherever he could. Right. As long as he had the URL pass, he was going to run it out because the American dollar was worth a boatload and he could just see all these different sites. And whatever relationships he made, he made. He wasn't expecting this relationship, though. Right. That relationship where you meet that perfect person you just sync with. Right. And how do you go about building on it, or do you? 
Right. And it sort of leaves you with that question, like, we'll meet back here in six months. Yeah. Six and months, except for six months minus a day, because they, as they're doing the math of, we'll do five years. Well, five years, so long. What about a year? Well, no, let's six months. And they even subtract a day saying, well, technically we met yesterday. Right. So six months from yesterday, we'll meet back here in Vienna, which... Fast forward nine years later. Nine years. Um, and he is now a published author. For doing a book basically about this event. Right. Um, and is at a book signing in Paris. And she sees that and decides to pop in on him. Um, and this one's a little more fresh in your mind than his mind. Because it's probably been two years now since I've seen Before Sunset. This, this is my favorite of the three. In this one, he is... Married, but you get the impression that his marriage was a settled kind of marriage. He has a kid, which does get brought up later and before midnight. In fact, you meet the kid. And basically, he's just touring, but he's in a loveless, sexless marriage, to say the least. they, They just basically coexist. And so, all of a sudden, enter Julie Delpy. Cassie, is that her name? I can't oh, believe Celine. Celine. I'm like, I can't, why can't, why can't I think of her name? Enter her, and he. there was a certain part of him that was hoping she'd be there, but another part that he truly wasn't, yeah. because he didn't know how he was going to react. And as they're talking, and as they just spend time just wandering around Paris, reconnecting, they're finding that they're not reconnecting, that they, they basically picked their relationship up off immediately where it left off. They, they get into the obvious first question, did you show up all those years ago? He didn't, he couldn't, she couldn't, her grandmother died is the story she gives. And so they both have, both have the excuse as to why they avoided this situation. But as they're talking throughout the course of the day, she can't carry on a relationship. She admits that all she's attracted to is that quick, easy fix, basically the get laid and get out situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas he went the other way with it. He went head first, tried to find that person he could carry on a, a full life existence with, and that didn't work either. That they were both looking for that thing which they had had those years ago in Vienna. And throughout the course of the night, they, they keep getting right to that point where they want to cross the line, and neither of them really does. And there was a really interesting scene where they're on a taxi cab, and he's talking about how loveless his marriage really is. And she starts to reach out, and I want to say goes to touch his ring on his finger, and freezes. And it's the closest to any true contact that they've had up to this point. Right down to acknowledging that that one night back in Vienna, they fucked twice during the course of the night. But here they are trying to keep things in check. Um, But they keep getting so close to the edge and not going over, because they understand he's married... He has this he has to deal with, even though he's clearly not. Mm -hmm. He's doing everything he can to escape it. Um, But one of the other fascinating scenes in the movie was a great one where they jump on a boat down the river. What's the river? Is it the Thames? That's England. Uh, The uh, Seine or something. Yeah, the River Seine. And uh, she admits she all, all the time she's been in Paris has never been on this boat. And... As they're going, she's wrecking that. And again, it translates to the, the relationship thing, how 
As she's looking around at all the beauty of the city around her, she never completely tried to appreciate what she had right there. Mm -hmm. That she just accepted it. It was there the whole time. But now that she's seeing it from another person's point of view, holy shit, this opens up a new world to me. And the movie ends on a fantastic scene where, well, it doesn't end there. They go back to her apartment finally. And it turns out that she is a, a jazz musician. And she, not only has he written a book about their night, she's written basically like this jazz ballad about their, their night together. Right. And then she spins it into a discussion of uh, Nina Simone, who... You see any movie on Paris, at some point, somebody's bringing up Nina Simone. Right. And the, the sexuality and the passion brought in her music. And they keep getting right to that edge and never crossing over. And it ends basically with her trying to get him back to the airport in time to fly home. Right. Movie ends with him catching the flight. Will they get together again? Well, actually, I think, as I recall, I thought it, I didn't... I thought it ended with we didn't really know if they bothered to go there or not. Well, yeah, they're heading to the airport. I just assumed that they did. I thought it, I thought it went blank in her apartment. Yeah, I thought they were on the road. Oh, well, whatever. But um, but then flash forward again nine more years, and this isn't flash forward. Flash forward in the movie nine more years. This is literally nine years later in real time. He filmed these three movies over the course of 18 years. And then we come to Before Midnight, where they've been married for a while. They have kids, and they've reached now the point... You're right. It did end in the apartment. I was confusing the scene in the taxi cab earlier. She's um, saying we need to get out. Right. Um, yeah, and he, he just gives that smile like, do we? Yeah. Roll credits. Right. You're right. Um, that's how I remember it. Nope, you're, you're completely right. Um, and now they're at the point in their relationship where it's just become, you know, the the novelty of the young love has now worn off. Right. They're now adults. They're, she has a job that she's not happy with. Does she want to keep it? Right. He, he is an acclaimed writer, but he's also got this other relationship back in the States with an ex that can't stand him, but a son that's mm -hmm. sharing time between the two. Right. And the reality of how to deal with that relationship, where now relationships mean something to him. Yeah. And then, you know, over the course of this, this movie, you know, all of their frustrations just sort of bubble to the surface and comes to this point. And now you, at this point, you have spent a good five and a half hours of your life with these two people you're invested in their story to, as a as a couple and Linklater takes this well Linklater and Delpy who wrote it um take this story to a very uncomfortable spot to the point where you don't know if they're gonna make it anymore and now you're like you are totally invested in it's like two people that you know that if they break up, your world is going to crumble. <laughs> yeah, well, you figure what? They're given the uh, the room by their friends. Yeah. And basically, here they are. All of, They're given... He sent his son home. The daughters are... Which, I love the scenes of the daughters early on. When they stop by the... Uh, the little Greek uh, side of the road place mm -hmm. and the girls are buying Ben and Jerry's but in Greek and, and 
they very early on show that Julie Delpy's character has become, as she puts it, the general of the family. And her, her kids even address her as the general. And so she's kind of ordering around. She even makes that comment to him. Well, all of a sudden, they find themselves in a spot where it's just them again. Here they are. They're in a hotel room. But you're now not 25 anymore. Where right. you can spend the whole night fucking, you can't anymore. Right. When you're in your late 30s, early 40s, you're realistically not going to do that. So now it's, you have this quiet time, what do you do with it? And what they find is that any pent-up frustration they've had is now coming to a head. Right. And she gets to the point where she says she doesn't think she can do this anymore. And they're left to pick up the pieces. And you find yourself... And it was such an authentic argument, oh, too. You... you you like as you reference. You have no idea how it's even going to play out right. because you can see both sides of things. Sure. You, you can see all along. They show that Ethan Hawke's character is, is plays things a little looser mm -hmm. than what she can handle. Mm -hmm. And as you're watching her conversations, you're like, "This is one of those cool chicks. That if you could ever meet, you go, yeah, I'd get it. I'd fall for this chick too.' But she's also grounded. She knows you got to work. And this, she's she's weighing the idea of what. She was working for a company trying to get a contract, I think, for wind turbines or something. Yeah. That doesn't go through, so she decides she may work for the government instead. Find something more stable. Knowing that her husband has this job. So you're like, this could be the perfect woman. However, is there, are, is there a point where she's too perfect? Where she's expecting stuff laid out too perfectly for her? Is she trying to dictate things too much? Are they too far apart? And you can see both sides. And... Do we get spoilery about the ending at this point? I sure. guess, because as it comes to a close, you realize that they, they've kind of come to that point where they're like, you know what? There is no perfect, but this is what we have, and it's pretty damn good. And as we've seen, their relationship has gone through all these peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they truly have what would work for most people as the ideal situation. And that's what they come down to. They don't really kiss and make up. Right. There's none of that there. For all we know, the same fight could bubble up the next day. Right. It's basically he comes down, meets up with her, says, look, I'm sorry. But the kind of sorry that we've all said before, like, I'm saying this to cover this up now. Let's just, I don't want to deal with, let's not go to bed angry. Let's just go to bed. Right. And you have no idea if we should, could see a movie nine years from now where everything's just falling apart. Right. It, it wouldn't surprise me if that's what we got. And I think that's the beauty of the film is... I don't know if we're going to see it. I don't either. I, I, I don't. I have no idea. Um, It'd be interesting. I'm in no hurry for that to show up because then... All no, of a sudden I, I'm I want the nine years. years. <laughs> if they're going to do it, I do want the nine years. Oh, and I don't want to hurry, hurry through my nine years. No, no. Is, not at this Because age. personally, I think that at some point, you're going to be getting a, you're going to be helping plan a funeral for Dan having a heart attack. Well, so, yeah. Well, just, it's a race to see who gets there first, I think. Uh, but I think that's what Linklater uh, later really got here is we get all the peaks and valleys. But throughout it all, early on, you see what people view as a perfect relationship but nobody believes there's that. In your 20s, you can accept it. Looking back now at what I thought was perfection, now I look at it and go, it was not perfect. It's just that you just, fuck it, I'll drink and ignore that. <laughs> right. you, you, you find ways to ignore it, and now you can't. 
And as you get older, you find that you can't just get beyond this. And that's kind of what he was highlighting. Is that eventually all those bills that you that went unpaid do come due. Sure. And I think that's the beauty in his work. Oh, well, this is certainly probably the most ambitious and well put together, authentic love story in cinema of the last you know, it's, 25, 30 years. Beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Um, and, you know, I, I was I was sort of surprised that you took to it as well as you did, knowing that you have some issues with, with a slowly paced... This is really six hours of just two people talking. It is. But what I was getting was a six-hour psychology lesson on relationship. And that's where mm-hmm. it worked. Is... From watching it, wow, that was a pop. <laughs> I got, I got top to bottom. Holy on shit, the that was bigger <laughs> than normally when I. Well, yeah. actually, I'm coming close to it. Uh, it. It truly was a lesson in how a lot of people's uh, how relationship can play out. Right, and that's what worked for me is it, he isn't afraid to show the dirty part of it. Right. And whereas most people would have said, oh, it's all that first night it's in Vienna. Not well, all it's about not all Vienna. about that no. night in Vienna. There, all those bills come due. And that's what he tried to show. Right. So after, I mean, like I said, that was, uh, before Sunrise was, was his fourth cinematic uh, thing back in 94-ish. In 2000, no, it was 96-ish. Then in 2000. Three, I want to say, is when he came out with Before Sunset, and then last year, Before Midnight. Um, <clears throat> so they, they come out every nine years. Uh, who knows if another one will come out. Yeah, 96, 2005, uh, Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, The Newton Boys, which I have not seen. I have, and, but you'll have to forgive me because I can't discuss I can myself this. because it was actually on HBO... HBO Go for over the last couple months I just never got around and I looked for it this week and it's already off there so yeah I never I never this isn't a, your standard Linklater film though it, well, that's just well you say that and I'm like is there a standard Linklater well, film well no 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 but this isn't that snapshot of hum, the human right. element it was basically a look at a, a if I remember right a Prohibition era gang family type gang that were well known because they were not violent and it was basically them pulling off the different heists and things, but keeping a certain standard of what humanity is supposed to be. That basically this was their way of surviving. The law may not agree with it, but what are you going to do? There's only so much money to be had, but we're not going to take people down with us. And unfortunately, like I say, it's probably been 15 years since I've seen this movie. I saw it literally the year it came out. I rented it. I remembered enjoying the hell out of the film. It's just different. Um, the next film that he did cinematically uh, probably can go hand-in-hand hand with another film because they were similar in in production value. He did uh, a, a film called Waking Life. Um, and then the other film I'm referencing is A Scanner Darkly. And whereas I say that they, they are similar in that they were both uh, animated features that used uh, rotoscope which basically means he shot the film with actors and then animators took that footage and drew the animation effects around that. So it's sort of similar in the way 
CGI experts today take like the motion capture stuff and then you know like uh, Andy Circus doing what he does and then the the computer graphic over that. This was a little before that where a actual animators would would go uh, and do that type of thing. Um, so in these animated features it can be a little bit more distracting. The animation pieces of this can be a little bit more distracting and take you away from the story a little bit more. Um, I know I know for you, A Scanner Darkly wasn't one of your favorite. No, but it's more... A Scanner Darkly is an interesting story, but... A it's Scanner, not easy to follow. No, 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 no. A Scanner Darkly is basically, so what is the drug trip and what is not the drug trip in this movie? The entire movie, if you told me it was one long drug trip, I could totally buy it. Now, to be fair to Linklater with A Scanner Darkly... It's based on work. Based off of... Philip K. Dick Philip work. Philip K. Dick work. So, based on that, I've never read this and work. From what I've read, people say he nailed it. Okay. But if he nailed it... Literally today before I came here, I reread the Wikipedia page, trying to understand what I saw, and I still yeah, it's don't some, completely it's know. Some sci-fi thrillery thing. In the future, about, about, drugs have taken over, and the yeah. government forms this task force yeah. to basically embed themselves in it. But they embed and themselves too much and become addicts. I just didn't get that while I was watching. No. I was I was kind of lost. And they have those. Whatever suits that basically yep. can take on the image and the look of everything. And, but the first time you see it, it's literally a scrolling image, half and half, yep. of all these different people. So it basically gives you the idea they can go into whatever situation becomes somebody else. Right. But again, it's a, the whole background is in the drug world. So you don't know if what you're seeing is supposed to be real or not. Right. And at one point, you find out that the main character that you've been following, is actually some other character, yeah. but he's been just taken over by the drugs so much he didn't realize it. Right. And he's even trying to find himself. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to watch because it's difficult to really comprehend. Like I said, to be it's, fair to Linklater, if he, if he was true to the source material, you can't really follow Oh, it's an ambitious that. work, I just say the least. I, it's, definitely not, it's definitely towards the bottom of my, as far as Linklater flicks go. Um, but again, not necessarily his fault per se. But what's interesting is I was talking to somebody on my team just about a month ago who was all nerded out because he found a copy of A Scanner Darkly. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw this movie the year it came out. I rented it. Yep. And I didn't know what it meant then. And this guy fucking loved the movie. So there are people that are huge Had fans he read of the it. book, though? I got the impression he had. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for that reason, he, he couldn't wait to sit and revisit this film. Apparently, Linklater got it, and nothing I'm seeing would make me knock Linklater's work. I just haven't seen it. Again, it's like Dune. If you see the, if you see a movie on Dune, it's one thing. If you've read the book and then see the movie, it's going to mean way much more. And I get the impression of Scanner Darkly is 20 times that. Well, and then I look at Awaking Life, which was also rotoscoped. Although, Waking Life, it was a lot more motion sickness inducing. Because everything that was happening around Waking Life was moving. Every, like, all of, the, all of the set 
animated set pieces. They were all moving constantly, and it was it was very it was hard to just focus on and watch without like getting sort of like nauseated watching it. So I didn't I didn't really care for that. The story behind Waking Life, you know, talking about dreams, what they may, what the, what they mean, all this kind of stuff, um, <clears throat> felt a lot more. The narrative felt a lot more slacker-ish, in that it was just people going from point A to point B, meeting new people, discussing different things and stuff. So it, from that perspective, it was it was more interesting to me narratively than the Scanner Darkly, which I just, at least I could follow it. It just visually, it was just a little bit more off-putting. Where Scanner Darkly, the the animation it's there, it film. was was really impressive. Mm -hmm. As as annoying as those little uh, scramble suits were, mm -hmm. after a while, you, you, that was kind of annoying. But you know, they really looked like the animated versions of those characters. And Winona Ryder is even hot in animation <laughs> for the for the for the time. The, the Robert Downey Jr. character in the Scanner Darkly looked oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. Um, but Waking Life is interesting if you don't mind, again, just random people popping in on each other and holding just real conversations about stuff that isn't necessarily all that interesting. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, different, just more, more reasons why Linklater doesn't get tied down into specific genres and stuff like that. Um... Then, um, you said you never saw tape. I haven't seen tape. And I saw tape, and it's three people. That's the whole thing. It's Ethan Hawke. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I know Uma Thurman's the well, Uma, Uma Thurman's I know the movie. I know the plot. And of, then, but... and then uh, the other guy, who he was the guy who uh, committed suicide in Dead Poets Society. Because his, his militaristic father is... Yeah, uh, keep anyway, talking. I'll, I'll anyway, anyway, it's the whole, the entire movie takes place in a motel room. Uh, Ethan Hawke's character brings in this guy who is having, they're, they're there for a film festival, and this guy has um, a film in the film festival, so the, the Ethan Hawke is there to support it. And through this whole, this whole conversation they're having, it brings up a girlfriend that he had back in high school who the other guy ultimately sort Robert of Sean Leonard yeah um he supposedly sort of stole from underneath Ethan Hawke um and allegedly uh date raped her and it was Ethan Hawke is trying to get this confession out of him and which he finally does and he tapes it and then the girl, played by Uma Thurman, shows up there. And then it's just this this give and take between these three characters about, you know, apologies and regrets and all this kind of stuff. And how, you know, how she doesn't look back on that as, as anything other than consensual relationships. She, she won't admit to, to him doing anything wrong. He's angry because he she won't accept an apology because he thinks he did do something wrong, and it's just this. It's really just this conversation between these three people again, just conversational stuff. It, it's all it all feels very grounded in reality, and 
um, just just another one of those. Like I said, if, if you if you're looking for shit to happen, Linklater's probably not your guy. No, 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 <laughs> no. Linklater doing an action movie would be right. really. I don't, don't want to see context. Linklater's buddy cop <laughs> flick, you know. Um, but tape is another one of those. It's just just remarkable to watch. Just to watch these three people interacting in, in an awkward situation, and, and it plays off good. Um, then another, um, did I miss it? Oh, yeah, I actually forgot all about, uh, Suburbia. Yeah, I saw that years ago. And Suburbia, for me, is probably, because I, because I look at the Before series as one thing, um, Suburbia is probably at third on my list of Lake Lighter Flicks. Because this is this feels very much like, almost like Clerks Light to me, where it's just this group of of kids in high school that hang around in front of a convenience store, talking about you know what pisses them off, what makes them happy, and stuff. And it's just their interactions. Mm-hmm. And when that when when one of their own who went off and is now a famous rock star, comes back to visit, and then his interactions with this group and how they're so jealous of him. And it's just another authentic look at at people of a certain age sitting around just being pissed at the world. Well, yeah, it, it, again, he captures what teen angst is from that era. Giovanni uh, Rabisi is in this. Parker Posey's in this. Uh, Steve Zahn is in this as sort of like a... You know, a J character, even a little bit more obnoxious, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely loves suburbia. Um, just, yeah, another another dialogue heavy driven mm-hmm. driven flick, but very authentic. Uh, School of Rock. Yeah, as somebody who hadn't ever really visited School of Rock until this past week, and I have no idea why, considering I was always a Jack Black guy. School of Rock to me is an an interesting offshoot for Richard Linklater because you could argue it's for the for the mass audience it's probably his most well-known film yet from what I've seen it feels the least like a Linklater film mm, yeah um, and, and I think I made the comment to you that this is the movie where I basically think he had an idea it may have been even given a script I don't know if this is his own work and basically then was given Jack Black and say, Jack Black, be Jack Black and do your thing. You, what you end up getting is just good family fare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a safe, fun movie. It plays out fine for the whole family. It has Joan Cusack. <laughs> but without the makeup that you're so used to seeing in Working Girl. Right. She's actually the opposite because she's the one who's like the principal of this. Yep. Of this, uh, I guess it'd be the equivalent if you go out west where they have the schools. Each district has the regular school, or then they have the school for the really smart kids. Mm -hmm. And this is the school for the really smart kids. It's not some special thing. The the parents still pick the kids up every day. But you have to have a certain GPA. There's that one girl who's the first class he accepts to run. The girl is quick to point out, aren't you supposed to teach us something? Aren't you supposed to be giving us some work to discuss or something. And it's great when he realizes the Battle of the Bands is coming up and he's finding roles for each of these. Right. Which, actually, that was something I did like about this movie. 
is it pointed out how narrow-minded schools are right now for music programs. Right. That if you're not classical music, they won't discuss it. But yet, look at the love we have for Elvis Presley, what he meant to rock and roll. Yeah. And that's what this movie acknowledges is, you know, you can teach kids more than classical. Beethoven wasn't the only one to make music that made some kind of mark on culture. And it kind of expands upon that, that kids can learn by learning rock if you give them Roots Rock. And it gets in the whole idea of learn Roots Rock, embrace what rock is, and you can get just as much out of it than as if you were reading what Beethoven's symphonies were supposed to be. Sure. And I hate Beethoven. Yeah. Uh, he did not write School of Rock. I, I, I didn't get the impression he did. That did not feel like his kind of work. But, I mean, it's definitely enjoyable. And, again, if you take it on that angle, that, look, kids can learn from rock music. You don't just have to play mm -hmm. Wagner music for them to get something from it. Well, it's just like, you know, my kid taking a class in college about Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire. I love that. Because the fact of the matter is you can still teach them literature. But if you give them something to base it in that they enjoy, they'll embrace it that much more. Right. Um, then there's a few flicks of his that I, I didn't see. I didn't see his version of the Bad News Bears. No, I didn't either. Um, you know, I, the, the first one. Why, why bother? You know, the first one's just so good. a remake of a movie that I already love. So. Right, right. Uh, me and Orson Welles, Fast Food Nation. Didn't see either nope. of those. Bernie, I did see from a few I years like ago. Bernie. Bernie was decent. Again, teaming up with Jack Black for yeah. another, you know. But Jack Black not being quite so oh, Jack far Black subdued. Here. Compared to the it, if I remember right, there was Black. even talk that some people thought he should have gotten an Oscar nom for this role. Yeah, I'd stop nah, short on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was quite good in the role of Bernie. But what's interesting is it was based on a true story. Right. So a lot of the people they interviewed were actually real people yeah. that knew the real Bernie. Yeah, the the guy he what killed his mother, right? But his mom was a total. Uh, I don't think it was his mother, but it was a it was a total lady friend. That was a total. Oh, that's right. He, that he knew, yeah. but she was known for being a bit of a crank, and right. and Bernie was the the funeral parlor guy who was just I won't say a pillar of society. He was that queer, quirky, maybe gay, has a <laughs> weird life, but was the first one to show up at church. Would help all the old ladies across the street. Would yeah. carry your bags for you to the car if he saw you. Yeah. Was just there's something odd about him, but not bad odd. Right. So if he did this, he did it to an old crank that none of us like. So let's take care of Bernie. Right. And it was how the, the town actually rallied around this guy who really killed somebody. <laughs> no matter how he did it, kept it in his freezer. Yeah. Which is awesome. So we we come to present day. And all of the hype and all of the all of the accolades surrounding his most recent venture, Boyhood. We do. Which we saw today. Um, a, a movie shot over the course of 12 years. Um, are, we, are we ready for Freshies? Should we, I don't pause, know. Should we pause before we get into uh, this? How... You've already killed one off. How yeah, I'm halfway there. Let, well, all right, let's let's. We, I feel this is going to take us half an hour. Oh, so. Well, gosh, we're almost at two hours already. Um, <laughs> Are we really? Yeah. Um, Holy shit. We'll uh, we'll link later, dude. Um, yeah, let's let's. I'm just going to throw in a pause here, and then we. And will, by pause, you mean beer break? Well, beer break, but yeah, now I can do a trailer or something. Right. I can do a sounder, 
and we'll come back and we'll we'll dive into boyhood. All right. We have fresh beers. We do. Except you're going to wait and open yours up in a second. And yeah, well, I, I'm not done with that. Yeah, you're not done. So, anyway. So, Boyhood. Boyhood. Written and directed by Richard Linklater. Arguably, well, I don't even think it's arguable. Uh, easily his most ambitious yeah. project. That's the word I would underline. This be. is an ambitious work. Um, There's no way he didn't go into this without the complete and obvious plan that this was his, his intent was to do a snapshot of this person's life. Yes, um, of a young of a young boy from age six to age eighteen, essentially. Um, you know, is <clears throat> a first grader all the way through his into his first year of college. Um, masterpiece. Oh, I think so. Uh, it, it's it's pretty impressive considering. Considering a lot of the things that could have gone wrong with this over the course of 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, just the fact that at what point maybe the kid's like, I don't want to do this again. Or I even I even heard that his daughter at one point had asked to be killed off in the story because she just didn't want to do it anymore, but he wouldn't do it. Oh, Sam? Yeah. That's his daughter? That's his daughter. I didn't realize that. I, I knew she'd gotten into acting. I didn't realize that she played his daughter. Yep. Um, what is fascinating about this, it'd be interesting to go in into this movie with somebody who has no knowledge of the fact that this was filmed over the course of 12 years. And, and just to see if they'd be like, wow, they really got actors that looked like yeah, each they other. Did a great job. <laughs> over the course of the years. Because well, this is really a snapshot of this of this family. You know, granted the, the mother and the father, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke, are the same throughout. So, but, but, but we still see them age over the course of the 12 years. But they are actual actors that are that are that were placed here to play these Well, roles. that's the thing. This is not a documentary. The no. fact of the matter is, it is a totally fiction story based around the characters in it. Uh, sorry, my wife just texted me photos of a fucking hot air balloon. <laughs> I have that to go for. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's... It, it would have cheapened it if they'd gone as this is the reality. Right. But instead what he went with is this is everybody's reality. Yeah. This is what it is to grow up in this day and age with all the outside influences going on where marriages for the most part don't last. 
where people are dealing with all these issues, where you're being pulled in 18 different directions, this is what it would be like to go from first grade up through your senior high school for your first day of showing up at college and your first time entering a dorm. Where right. you are officially considered to be an adult by most people. Here's what it's like. And, and it was such... Nothing is glamorized here. Oh. But nothing feels like it was intentionally made to be great or horrible. The best comment I've heard about this movie is... I don't remember what podcast I was listening to that, that does movie reviews. And they made the comment that somebody said, I saw the movie and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And their comment was, and that's exactly the point. That people's lives, you don't have elves and dwarves in your life. Mm-hmm. You have real life events that you need to figure out how you're going to wend your way around them. Right. Whatever way you do. And that is your life story. And that's the whole point of boyhood is, again, it's going back to slacker. Everybody is a character in the bigger play that is society. And it's how you go about all the little obstacles that become your story. And boyhood shows the way he's gone about all these different obstacles. Some of them are pretty unusual, but nothing... That are so unusual, you don't know somebody who's been through that exact same situation. Sure. And what, what Linklater did over the course of his 12 years is he would get this, this group of people together for two or three days every single year and film a few scenes around them that he wrote. Of, the new, of this part of the script. Right, right. You know, so you're starting out when the kid's like six years old and... You can tell that the parents are recently divorced. Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette are recently divorced. Um, you know, for the most part, amicably. I mean, yeah, early on you get a little tension between them and stuff. But yeah, but it's you don't supposed get the, to be the... the, 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 the it just... It wasn't an abusive thing. No, it wasn't they like that. They just They got together at a time when neither of them had a pot to piss in. Right. They, they squeezed out some kids, probably when they shouldn't have, but then at the first ones to do it. Right. And damn it, he went away. But they never even made it sound like that was a bad thing. Right. It made it sound like he went to Alaska. Maybe he was going to work for the pipeline or right. something like that. She was trying to be the best mom she could on the very, very meager income she had. Right. Isn't it, wasn't it refreshing, though, to see people... And I was granted as, as you know, left-wing as some of these characters ended up going. Wasn't it interesting, though, that people that, that weren't going to sit there and... and it, it, based on their situation, people who needed that extra help... But we're going to take it. Right. Well, I we're going to do going, in real life, I hate every single one of these people. But I respect your approach to some of the things yes. you're doing. Because you're all hippie douchebags. You're worshipping a president that's done nothing right. to help you. Right. In fact, you're doing shady things to help said presidential right. candidate. However, at least you're working. Yes. And that's something. You're not blaming other people for right. your situation. You're owning every right. single bit of it. You still the mother moved because she knew her opportunities were better somewhere else. Yeah, she could go to school. Yeah. You know, the, she could move back in with her mom or whatever and, and take some classes to better her situation. Isn't that just a fucking novel idea? But it was still right full of liberal hippie dudes. Well, that I yeah, said, it, it, I'd go. I hate every single one of you guys, <laughs> especially when they showed the college party she was throwing. I'm like, 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're all singing. Oh, you're really singing comfortably numb together. Love Fuck you. you. Needed a blue. We needed blue to lock in at that scene. Smash the guitar. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I did think I hate all of you, and I so I understand Linklater's approach to politics. Got it. Mm-hmm. Fine. That's that's his agenda, and so be it. But the world he created around it, I could certainly exist Absolutely. At. It, at least they were trying to do their own thing. What he's missing is his politics, for the most part, people don't try to do what he was portraying. Right. For the most part, they go to the easy route. Right. Um, so we're watching this kid grow up, and we're seeing a lot, at least for me, I can't speak for you, but... I'm seeing a lot of things play out early on in this kid's life that feel very familiar to me. Oh, God, yeah. Especially, like, you kind of, you latch on to the older kids, because the older kids found a way to sneak the beer, the bottle of alcohol, or they, they know... They know where the porn stash is kept out in the woods. Or in my life, it was uh, this kid had had a stack under his porch and stuff. And we, we close enough to the woods, yeah. you all keep showing up and yep. looking at the same porn. And when they're sitting there flipping through the magazines and stuff, oh, I'm like, oh, like the old awesome. J.C. Penny and Sears yes. catalogs. I flip yeah. through the Sears <laughs> panties and bra ads quite often. <laughs> And even the scene, and it was an odd scene, but I, I just the look he had when he saw the dead bird on the ground. Yeah. That was decomposing and how fascinated he was with it. Yeah. And they, it was no callback. It was just, here's somebody who's so new to life seeing death. Yeah. Boom. And this is what you're going to become. You're just going to rot and end up part of the ground. And it was just a beautiful shot. Um, some of the other stuff, what's interesting too is that he doesn't linger on anything. He doesn't necessarily give closure to things that a regular fictional narrative would do. Because you you get to a point about a third of the way into this where the mom hooks up with a fairly well-to-do guy who who turns out to be abusive alcoholic. And it, it lingered a little longer on that, that arc than I would have hoped it would have. Because after a while it was like, all right, I, we, get we get it. it. We get it. Um, Do you but, get the impression Linklater was in that situation I don't at some know. point in life? I don't know if, how much of this plays off of his own experiences. I, I, there was a part of me watching that felt the same thing you did. Where I wondered, did his mom end up with a drunken I don't know. It would be interesting to see. I, I, you know, and I'm... I'm God, I hope Criterion gets a hold of this freaking oh, thing and it gives us something on it because that would be freaking awesome. Um, but yeah, so you got the 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 abusive drunken guy who had his own two kids and he marries the mom, of course, with her two kids. Um, and then you knew you knew he was going to play the alcoholic thing because he was hiding the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then then you see the mom who clearly had just been been smacked around and stuff. <clears throat> but then he gets to the to that point where she, you know she goes to the friend and pulls her two kids out of this kind of stuff, and a a fictional narrative, a forced narrative. Well, this is fiction, but a, a real movie would have found a way to have given you closure on this and and given you uh, some way of like something happens to this guy after. 
You never see him again. No, you never hear you him again. No idea you don't know any of those kids that were left dead. there. Yeah, you don't. Which, unfortunately, the way that night could have gone, yeah. in my mind, they're dead, well, or at least beaten to shit, or something. They've seen some traumatic event yeah. that's scarred them for life, and they hate her as a result because potentially she got her kids out of the situation. Potentially, but and and thank God again, that's another. But another it's the thing. reality. It's, yeah. Yeah, Which I love the fact that she even addressed that. Will I am we ever not see their them again? legal guardian. There's right. nothing I could have done. If I take them, it's kidnapping. Well, and she said, I called child services. I did I did everything I legally could do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then you never hear from that again. It's just like, all right, we're moving on. And like I said, it's really just a snapshot of these this life of this family. And it's not concerned. She even says it. Don't look back. Don't ever look back mm-hmm. at this. Um, and then you move on to to whatever's next, and, and that's what this whole movie was. There's no, there's no definitive closure to any segments of what Linklater gives you throughout this whole film. Even in the spots where it's natural for you to think, "Oh God, I wish I really want to know if this douchebag got his comeuppance," because mm-hmm. I because that's what we're, we are program to understand about movies is that we need to find we need to know what happened there we don't know what happened well and there's a great point one of the things that they they touch upon but never really do is mom clearly has a drinking problem too her booze of choice is wine and later on in the movie she's always got a half full glass she's always drinking they even reference it at every party She's the one making sure she's got a glass. And so you don't know what's happened with mom. Now, we're going to have the same issue with mom. And the one voice of reason at one point is the military guy she rares, yeah. who's also a bit of a booze hound. However, what he was saying wasn't necessarily wrong. No. And it was an interesting angle. That basically he's calling the kid out because his mom will not hold him to what rules are. If you say you're going to be home at 11, be home at 11. Or call. And just because I'm sitting here with beer doesn't mean that you can't do that. That right. mom was always also at times giving the kid a pass. Yep. And that's, the, the, that's one of the undertones of this movie is there's also times when parenting by being hands off in helping him either. Well, even like when he came home at his, you know, when he was 15 there. And, and it was, he called him drinking out. and smoking. She's like, oh, yeah. we'll just talk. We'll about talk it. about it in the morning. It's like, are you fucking kidding and, me? And a lot of that could be a, a function of the fact that here's a single mom who maybe feels guilty for mm-hmm. for the shit storm that is her life. And she's just being lenient with the kids because she feels bad or something like that. And, and there's times where you, you never you never doubt this woman's ability to be a good parent. Oh, sh- but she's not a great parent, though, ever. You you, right. you respect her for doing her damnedest. Right. But and, it, and the movie does an incredibly good job of showing you that she is doing everything right. within her power. Within her power. But there are times where she stops just short of being the right parent. Right. And that's the thing is... Again, I don't think Linklater tries to show perfection. He tries to give you that little, here's what you have to decide. How would you re- react in this situation? Well, that's how my parent came a... home and uh, my kid came home and said, I've been drinking, oh, and smoking, and I'm 15 years old. Done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't Done. Say. 
and, and I, that would be it. I, it was I just, think what you said there makes makes good sense because Linklater, every one of these little little vignettes of, of different ages and stuff, it kind of leads you and moves on to the next one while you're still trying to process what it what would have happened to you or what would you have done in the situation that we're just about to leave. And then we were moving on to what's next. And I think that's what a lot of this movie is, is it makes you play out the plot line yourself. From if, both angles. Right. If you were in this situation, how would you play it out? Because at no point is he telling you what's right or wrong. He's having you as the viewer say, how would you react? Right. And just fill in the pieces. Oh, by the way, we're moving on. Here's how the kid is now. Did she do the right thing, or has he been that much more fucked up? Another one you have to look at is Samantha, which I thought early on it was interesting that they were calling it boyhood, yet I thought early on she was as integral to the story as he was. Well, sure. And she's an annoying little fucker. She was, <laughs> but you can all, you early again, on. know that mom who's got two kids, one being the older daughter, who is literally that kid. That plays every angle, that turns, that, that instigates everything and becomes the victim in everything somehow, that's her. Yeah. And it was such an interesting take on it, where later on, she was the first one to go to school, she was the one who was getting the talk first, and yet, he was learning everything almost through her eyes. And it was basically, all the mistakes that they'd seen through the mom were being reflected in Samantha, and how would she react to it? And the, to be honest, one of my favorite scenes in the movie was that one in the bowling alley, when Dad is giving them the talk. And you can see him, the, the weird ground he has to walk in saying, I love you guys, but don't make the mistakes we did. Your mistake, we love you for it, but don't make the same mistakes. Don't set yourself that far behind. And start having kids when you could give a few years and give them oh so much more than we could ever give you. And it was such a great, great statement. Especially, again, following the politics of the movie. They could have easily fallen on the, no, there are people there to help. And this, they weren't falling on that. They were, we need to provide for you. We couldn't. And they even said we were 23. 23 is not unheard of to have kids. I would even argue yeah. that's not too young by any stretch. But you need to understand your financial situation. Here they were saying, we didn't totally grasp it. We ignored it. We had a mistake. We're doing all we can. But bowling's the best you're going to get out of us. Right. And you're, you're going to have to just Without steal. bumpers. In op without bumpers. <laughs> Even though I'm watching that going, you could just get the kid one of the like six-pound plastic balls, too. He doesn't have to be rolling the 15-pound right. freaking ball. Right. But, and, and Sam was supposed to be that reflection of mom at that age. What was mom like? What was she going through? Everything that Sam was? Perhaps, perhaps not. And you kind of had to navigate your way around it. And I actually liked when it turned back to being his story. But Sam's, to me, would be interesting. Because she was seeing everything from the eyes of her mother. And she was also the one that was getting a lot of the attention early on. Because early on, they also made it clear that Sam was the intelligent one. She was the one that pressed herself at school. She was the one that also liked sports. Mm -hmm. So she was the straight-A student. She was the one that was in basketball. She was the one that could play every angle. And for that reason, the parents 
really actually seemed to lean more towards her. Right. Mason was the quirky kid. Yeah. In everything. Didn't like sports and, you know, didn't necessarily... I mean, he, he got along with kids and stuff, but he, he gravitates towards photography and artsy-fartsy right. stuff, which, you know, it, it's hard to... It's hard to, to realize that this really was played out in the 2000s, you know, because it's, it's easy to remember when you were a kid, a lot of the stuff you saw in this movie from when you were a kid, like the, like the, the magazines under the thing. And they even, they even morphed that into like, I can't believe you guys didn't have Oh, the no porn? One, yeah, I'll bookmark some stuff <laughs> for you here. That's and, why I loved when every now and then they throw that in or when Samantha was showing, what's her name? Her dad's new wife, that was the religious, kind of religious, but actually likable, and was showing her a Lady Gaga video yeah, on yeah. her cell phone. Mom, to watch this. And I'm like, this is awesome because yeah. you're reminding me of the era this is happening in. Right. And that's where that really Because worked. it was easy to get lost, especially knowing Link later and what he's done in the past with the with dazed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the stuff that you see yourself, some of these situations you see yourself in. You remember from when you were real young, which of course was the the seventies and eighties, and then he does have to rein it back in from time to time, and and remind you that no, this this is very recent stuff. The same things we felt, kids still are feeling is what he's yes. pitching. Yeah. but there's different mediums for it. Right, right. Uh, loved the scenes in Texas at the grandparents' house when when Ethan Hawke took over their stuff. When for, for his birthday he gets a Bible and a shot. That dude, that was perfect. Because <laughs> here's a kid who clearly has no interest in in religion and stuff like that. You know, he's he's kind of got this little bit of a rebellious teen streak in him where. You know, earrings and nail polish, and he, he's got sort of this this mopey gothic feel to him and stuff like that. So you know that some of these situations, you know, where he was always respectful. Mm-hmm. But to your point about the the husband number three there or whatever, the the corrections officer, Jim or whatever his name was, guy yeah. who who yeah, you know, he, he just he liked his beer, but he wasn't he wasn't abusive like the guy no, before. he was he was the but, conservative, one. but yeah, he was the conservative one. And, you know, they're in Texas, so he's the one who who's all about the discipline and stuff like that, and he's dealing with this this kid who's clearly. Discipline isn't his thing. No, and moms let it kind of yeah. go by the wayside. And that yeah. was a theme throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. Was she wasn't willing to speak up to him ever. Right. Um, so it played out interestingly with the grandparents, who clearly were these, you know, were. were I mean, they they were a little bit stereotyped as uh, as the the Bible Belt uh, Texas uh, people who just want their guns and their Bibles. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I, those people are out there, but, you know, it isn't all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it was funny. And, and the kid was always respectful of it all. No, no, he wasn't a bad kid about it. Right. And he, at least he'd acknowledge that this is their way of saying they appreciate it. Yeah. And, and, and he totally respected that, which I liked. They didn't have him as, like, douchebag skater dude. Who was throwing it in their face. Which they could have very easily, because they wrote that fine line. Right. They wrote a very fine line of of being able... And, and, and just a regular movie probably would have gone that route. Mm-hmm. 
um, would, would he would have been just this this rebellious. Yeah, kid. where he would have challenged them on all yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, why do you believe this? And, and instead, no, he he. His thought was, you know what? This is my dad's new wife's parents, but they like me. Not only do they like me, they're giving me a shotgun that was his own dad's. So that means something to them, and let me accept it and graciously. And I like that aspect that they, even though he was the quote unquote entitled kid that you get now, he still at least understood. What this level of respect was. Well, yeah, that's why I liked what Linklater does in all of his movies, but especially here, is that he doesn't sensationalize things. No, it keeps things at the human element. That, yes. That humanity is the key. Humanity and humility. It's like, yeah, I could take this kid as some rebellious thing, and he could attempt suicide. We could end up in a hospital bed with, with, the, with the family coming back together to hold hands or something or, or whatnot. But even even scenes like in, in the the school bathroom where the bullies kind of pick on, and that's it. It just moves yeah. on from there. It isn't about getting revenge on them. It isn't no, about just... getting revenge on the abusive drunken husband. It, it's a, it's just like this happened at this point in time in my life. Now we're moving on to what is next, and he does just a masterful job of that without sensationalizing and and building some forced fake narrative around it to. Make it more interesting or palatable to an audience that's watching it. That's an interesting piece. The only death in the entire movie was the bird. There's not a single person who dies throughout the entire movie, right? The only death he ever sees in the movie is the dead bird he finds. Yeah, I guess so. The, the closest is, I think it was Sheena on the bike earlier... Is talking about going to see her girlfriend who attempted suicide. Yeah, she tried to say she, but Sheena throws her into the front of the bus. Was it Sheena on the bus? I think it was, but I'm not certain. I would need to go see the. There's two things I need to see. When he talks to her, did he say her name was Sheena? I don't. Or was her girlfriend who was into him that she was talking about named Sheena? And when he's packing his box to go away to school, I'd swear the T-shirt on the top was a state of Maine T-shirt. It looked like it said Maine and, and cursive, which I laughed if it was. Um, but regardless, she was talking about going to visit a friend of hers who was in the hospital for yeah. trying to kill herself, who was emo. But she admitted that the girl clearly didn't try that hard. That it was basically like a half-assed attempt, but she's really emo and was getting all that stuff anyway. Call for attention. Yeah. And... and that was fascinating to me that Linklater would call it out again, knowing the knowing his politics that he'd basically say that this is just a call for attention. Yeah, and that was the only. It was great. Well, to we me. keep we keep referencing Linklater's politics. I don't know what Linklater's politics are. No, but I would assume that having seen what I've seen in this, I know what it is. Not in a bad way. Again, he's not forcing right. it down people's throat. Right, right, right. And right. he showed people reacting the right, right way. Right. But I, I would assume that his politics being what they are, he stands on a side of things that we don't necessarily stand on. Right. But at least his side, his view, is people need to be in charge of their own bullshit. Right. Um, but what I liked is, by not bringing death into it, they didn't sensationalize that piece of it. Right, and I think that's a lot of the reason why, like I said, where Lorelai's daughter, who plays Samantha, she had actually at one point asked to be killed off. 
and he wouldn't do that specifically be, because it's like no that we that it's some that is pushing something into the narrative that's going to take away the authentic authenticity mm-hmm. of this i mean the reality is that that that's not that just doesn't happen on any kind of regular basis and if we allow that to happen here then we're just another movie yeah. and this Most is if some things aren't dying right that plain, that simple. And if you put that in, all of a sudden it makes this movie something something more dramatic than it's supposed to be, and then yeah. more fake. Right. It's not a slice of reality. Right. Which and that's, it, in that's the what end this is what this is. This is plenty dramatic as it is. And it's dramatic just based off of, of just regular everyday happenings. Which is summed up by the final, really the final scene of his mom... Where she starts crying because he's going off to college. And she literally says... That is bugged this... me because that's a little too close to home. <laughs> well, and I did think that, dude. Yeah. It, 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 is, that, is this all there is? I, I've yeah. been married to a drunkard and split up. Then we married... I married another one and split up. Yeah. I married another one and split up. And now all of, all of the benchmarks, all the milestones of my life are now done. The yeah. only thing left for me is death. Yeah, because her kid's going to college yeah. and she's by herself. That's that. Yeah, and it, it was, it was an interesting statement about what people do believe are their own personal benchmarks too. Mm-hmm. And I, I, not that I could ever put myself in those shoes because I can't. I have no kids. But yeah, I can see where if you're a parent, your benchmark is getting you, getting your kid through school, getting them sent off to college. But then they're their own person. There's mm-hmm. nothing more you can do. Right. And, and that's you just kind of hope you've done it. You've done a good job right. of doing that. That you prepared them for what it is to become what you are, right? Or to become something different than you are. Should that be the case? Like a lot of the characters in this. And I love the I love the final shot of the movie there, where he meets. You know, he's off at college, and he meets these people, and the the roommate is really fairly irrelevant to the whole thing. But then there's this other girl, and he still is just that awkward. Kid, he's oh, res- dude. I literally found myself watching the scene going, This is like the scene in Drive where they're not talking to yeah. each other, and you're going, But would you? You literally have met this chick for three minutes before you started this hike, right? And for a good two minutes there on screen, you're, you're kind of waiting, like, Dude, what, what more do you need? What more of an opening do you need at this point? And then it just goes black. But is that the reality, though? Exactly. Exactly. He He only knows this girl for an hour. Does not betray (laughs) what he set up this whole time in this final shot. Yeah, sure. uh, uh, Mason could have leaned in and and started making out with her before that. But that wasn't what... None of that... Has been a part of this movie no. to go. They along weren't going for the sensational. Right. They were going for the real. Yeah. And the real is in most people's lives they wouldn't because you've only known this girl for an hour and you may be thinking and chicken shit. She's given me these openings. Yeah. However, I'm not going to act on it because if I do and I'm wrong, then I'm the creeper who went way too far and I got to deal with this person yeah. for another four years. Yeah. And it was yeah, it was perfect. Yeah, perfect ending. Well, I think I think this this movie is probably about as perfect as you get all the way through. I, I could not disagree with you. It, uh, it, is, it was sheer brilliance. Uh, so ambitious. Anything could have happened over the course of twelve years. You know, any some of these people could have died, which would have completely derailed the entire thing. 
Well, and again, that's why I brought it up. I'm glad they never went that way. Yeah. That they kept it to what the reality Well, I mean, was. in the thing. I mean, in real life. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, Ethan Hawke gets uh, run over by a bus. Dude, that I love the did. fact they brought the Mexican septic guy back. <laughs> That was the only thing that like got some sort of like uh, like got a closure if you were well, looking for. Well, if you wanted to say there was sensationalism, maybe yeah. that guy. Yeah, maybe it's convenient that they yeah. show up at his restaurant. He's now, but they still kept it. At, I went and got my associate's degree because of what you told me. Yeah, and now I'm working towards my bachelor's. But because I got my associates, I can now manage this yeah. restaurant. It's, Thank you. If he did anything, if Linklater did anything here, is that he validated the job that the mom did over the course of the entire life. He empowered between, people to be in charge of their own reality. Yes, yes. You know, so between that scene and between later on when Ethan Hawke says, you did a great job, thank you yep. for what you did. And she just, that's all she wanted. She appreciated that. That, that was the only scene I started to feel anything coming to me, dude. I literally had a, a tear coming out. I'm like, this is a great scene. Because mm-hmm. you could see that was that was what she needed. Mm-hmm. Because he just bailed. Yeah. And, and throughout the entire movie, I'm watching it going, it's so convenient. So you're the dad who has no job, which we know the job's probably dealing in substances and stuff that you shouldn't be or... You're, you're making a living that's not legal, right. but you're making some kind of a living, but you buy the kids gifts so they're going to appreciate it. Yeah. But mom is the one who is going to make you go to school, go to bed, do your work, all these things. So they dislike her more than they like, dislike you. That's not fair. Right. Because you have the easy part. And I like the fact that they spun it later on and, and had him own up to the fact that, look, they had you. I was no part of this and you did yeah. a great job. Yeah. That alone, I'm like, yeah, that, that's a cool little angle to take. Yeah. I mean, not, this isn't the type of movie that, that you're going to watch over and over and over and over again. It's not that type of movie, mm-hmm. but I, I absolutely need to see it again. Yep. <clears throat> not I'll, necessarily I'll, in the theater. No, I'll buy it when it hits DVD, especially if Criterion, if Criterion gets a hold of this and then there's just oodles and oodles of extras and commentary and stuff. I, I and, and I heard rumor that, that it will hit Criterion at some point. It, it has to. This is just, this is without a doubt one of the most ambitious things I've ever seen out of any filmmaker. And knowing what he did with the Before series and now with this, there's no doubt in my mind that Linklater stands uh, up up in the discussion with the greatest filmmakers of all no, time. No doubt. So. so there it is. Two and a half hours. Holy shit. Which I didn't think we'd, we'd get an hour and a half out of this. I but, either, uh, but... but Linklater deserves it, I guess. Yeah. We, we paid tribute to a guy who deserves it. Yep. Now other people need to be on him. Yep. Um, so in a couple more weeks, uh, we'll date to be determined. We'll, let's get into our, our most anticipated of the fall. Because, you know, we'll, we'll do some horror stuff here coming into September, October. Because it's just that type of year, time of year. But then it starts. Time to start thinking about the Oscar stuff. All the right. Oscar, let's, the Oscar movie. We got a couple months. We the have Oscar. Annabelle coming. Come on, dude, we're, only, we're only about five weeks away from Gone Girl here. I know. You know, this stuff is coming up on us real quick. I was here. really happy to see that trailer with this film because Gone Girl. That's the born. first I've actually seen the full trailer. Yeah, me too, and I, I am so intrigued with this movie. Um, no, it looks good. I mean, I love Fincher, and you know, I, I, I like take him or leave him acting sometimes, but he looks good here. 
Um, I think Affleck's having kind of a renewal, a lot like McConaughey. Affleck. <laughs> Batflack. Yeah. Batflack. All right. Uh, well, a couple more weeks, we'll come back with some uh, our most anticipated in the fall, but that's it. Late.